Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Boom Comic Source collaboration. Time for your DC Spotlight for December 19th, 2023. Uh, we hope that you guys have been joining Rocky and I for 12 Days of the Comic Source. We've been celebrating Bad Idea, counting down some of, uh, or not counting down, but covering some of the series from Bad Idea. A lot of them Rocky hasn't had a chance to read yet, so that's been a lot of fun. Uh, we hope you're all having a joyous holiday season, getting to spend time with family and friends. We know it's hectic. We know it's busy. Uh, so we hope you're having some time to enjoy some comics as well. Pretty big week this week, although DC's had such big weeks lately, like 18, 17, 18, 19 books that <laughs> there's 14 this week and it didn't feel overwhelming, which I, by no means do I want that to be precedent. You know, like eight books, 10 books, that's that's plenty. Uh, we start getting more than that. It, it's, it feels overwhelming. But overall, I thought it was a pretty good week. Um, one of those weeks, though, where the highs are really high and the lows are unfortunately really low. There's a couple of, of real stinkers in here, but uh, trying to keep it positive. Uh, overall, I, I enjoyed this week. What do you think, Rocky? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, in, I'm batting the majority here. The majority of the titles this week I enjoyed, but there were some that, uh, you know, there's some I just, there was one I just outright avoided and some, one I thought was particularly bad. Uh, you could probably guess which one it was, but uh, but for the most part, the, the the more majority, I'm still batting about 60, 60, 70% of the comics I, I've been enjoying, and some are particularly good. So uh be curious to hear your thoughts as we go through them. Yeah, and I'm sure long-time listeners will, will know, you know the trends, <laughs> the things we tend to like and the things we tend not to like. And one of the things we tend to like is Batman Superman World's Finest. So uh, we're up to issue number 22 here, almost two years in. Mark Waite is the writer, Dan Mora on art, Tamara Bonvillan on color, Steve Wands on letters. We're continuing the Heir to the Kingdom storylines, chapter three, Gospel of Gog. Um, you know, Gog being sort of the, um, the, the mentor of Mugog, you know, the, the kind of the, antagonists of, uh, Kingdom Come miniseries, Alex Ross, Mark Wade back in the day. Very influential, uh, very much an evergreen title for DC. And when Mark Wade started, uh, when he introduced uh, Boy Thunder, you, you know, uh, I think it was the second arc that he did, maybe the third arc of World's Finest. There were hints that he was related to Magog, that he was Magog. Wade never confirmed those, but he didn't shy away from them either. Kind of just let the story do the talking and then came back to it a few arcs later. That's the arc we're on now. And yeah, we're starting to see how it ties in to Kingdom Come. You know, Gog showed up last issue. We get his origin in this issue. We get what he's about. He's um, not being honest. He's not being truthful with Magog. Um, but, you know, based on the trauma and the things that Magog has been through, I mean, we actually see him become Magog in this in this issue. You know, we see the transformation from... Uh, Thunder, you know, he was Thunder Boy when he was on our Earth, went over to, what is it, Earth-22, became uh, Thunder Man, and now we're talking about him actually becoming uh, Magog, you know, the character from uh, from Kingdom Come. Uh, what's interesting, uh, I won't go so far as to say that it doesn't make sense, like, continuity-wise. I think, I mean, obviously Mark Wade wrote Kingdom Come. If anybody is going to make it make sense, it's him. But Certainly when he, you know, he wrote that story, he probably didn't even have a concept of Thunderboy, of, uh, of, of Thunderman, of David, or, or maybe did, I don't know. But it, it necessarily think he would have a concept of David 
you know, as a, as a young boy and the trauma that he'd been through losing his parents, losing his world that, and that sort of thing. Um, so it, it's kind of interesting because it, it's a little hard to see how you get to the story that happens in kingdom come. If we're going to get a resolution to this story, right? So it, it's one of two things. Uh, it's kind of like when you go back and tell a story uh, about the Titanic, guess what? At the end, the boat sinks, right? Like you, you have to get it to that point. So it's kind of interesting. Can can Superman and Batman really have a, a, a true clean victory here? Can they stop Gog? Can they stop uh, David or Thunderman or Mugog as he's been transformed in, in this issue? Well, you can't really have that because then if you do, then you undo everything that happens in Kingdom Come. Like Kingdom Come doesn't happen, right? Uh, so kind of interesting. Now, that, you know, I'm nitpicking and, and whatever. I'm sure Wade will give us a satisfying story. Uh, just something I've been thinking of, uh, like, how do you do that? You know, because it does seem like a big challenge in terms of just, okay, forget about Kingdom Come. Forget that I ever read it and just read this for what it is. It's really enjoyable. It showcases uh, who Superman is, who Batman is. And that's one of the, the strengths of, you know, the world's finest title throughout DC's long history. Um, it's so much about the core of who those characters are, how they're different and, and what their friendship, what their relationship is like. That's all highlighted here in the context of the stories that Mark Wade is telling. This one happens to be a multiversal story with, you know, uh, hints of some of the characters that, that will come to pass in kingdom come. So in terms of all that, it works really well. The Dan Mora art is absolutely fantastic. The colors are bright and vibrant. Um, for, there's nothing not to like, you know, despite me kind of wondering, well, you know, how's this all going to make sense? You know, that again, that's a nitpick. I can set that aside and just enjoy this for what it is uh, and what it is a really great comic and, and a really great title. So, um, yeah, for me, this was one of the, the better books this week. What do you think, Rocky? I quite enjoyed it. I, I, I think it's I think it it's told very smoothly. I think it's easy to transition from this into Kingdom Come. There's a little bit of. uh uh, I, I know Alex Ross didn't particularly like some of the things that were done uh, by Jeff Johns in the pages of Justice Society when he touched on Earth-22 back in the day. But uh, I know Mark Wade, uh, he did indicate in an interview that he had spoken with Alex Ross and discussed some of the things. And so Mark Wade, I, th- I think, it, you know, come hell or high water, we can probably trust that, like you said, that Mark Wade knows what he's doing here. And regardless, I mean, it, uh, you know, it, it, it is smooth. We get an origin for Gog here. The origin of Gog, it's very, it's very straightforward. Uh, Gog was a, was a creature, was a god of the third world. And uh, in the transition from the third world to the fourth world, the third world was destroyed. And the, from the remnants of the third world, Apocalypse and New Genesis were born, which gave rise to Darkseid and, of course, a high father. And uh, one of the remnants of the third world was, was Gog himself became a force. And he ultimately ended up on Earth-22, where for thousands of years he was a benevolent god. He was a good god. He was a kind god. But then he disappeared for 10,000 years. And he only came back when David himself disappeared from Earth-designated zero. Uh, and when he appeared, when David uh, Thunderboy appeared on Earth 22, 
Gog was attracted to, to David because David has the power to transport between worlds, uh, to traverse the, the multiverse. And Gog ulti- Gog's ultimate plan is to use David's power, i.e. Thunderman, and then, of course, changes him into Magog, and then u- utilizes that power. His ultimate goal is to take all the heroes of the Earth-22, of Earth-22, and to attack, uh, uh, basically, Apocalypse on basically a suicide mission. And that's what's discovered here. But how they discovered is just, I love, I love the respect that Mark Wade gives, not only the two Batman, Batman and Superman from Earth One, but Batman and Superman that we know and love from Kingdom Come. As somebody who loves Kingdom Come, he gives a lot of respect to Batman and Superman, the older versions of Kingdom Come, they figure it out. Uh, the older Batman figures out that that they're maybe being played for fools by Gog. Uh, Batman, uh, the older Batman, understands that he he figures out that something is wrong with David, that he's not entirely being truthful. He can see the signs, and he saw the signs before uh, the older Superman did. And of course, we end up with we're going to end up next issue with two Superman, two Batman, fought, you know, basically trying to take down Gog and obviously this new Magog uh, and to try to prevent this suicide mission to Apocalypse. Uh, this is really epic. This is really cool. We should also mention that this is the first time that the heroes of the, uh, this is the first time that Superman and Batman of Earth 22 become aware of the existence of a multiverse. And so we have that as well. And we got all these little cards coming into play here. And we get some introductions of new heroes. We get the, the, the new heroes are hinted at. We're not really sure who they are. There's a few that even Batman of our of, of Earth One doesn't recognize. Uh, they hold their own pretty well, Batman and Superman. And it's I love the detective work. I love the appearance of Metron. Gog seems to be sitting on Metron's chair, the Mobius chair. Uh, that's pretty cool too. The last time the, the last the last time the Mobius chair gained a lot of prominence is when Batman sat on it and uh, you know asked you know. Who's the Joker? <laughs> so it's nice to see Mark Wade, you know, bringing the Mobius chair back and being utilized by Gog uh, for nefarious purposes here. And I thought it just, it's, this just works really well. Mark Wade continues, uh, notwithstanding some, you know, he, he maybe in his uh, social media uh, profile, he's had some hiccups as of late. But as a, as a comic book writer, he continues to just hit it out of the park. Oh, sorry, you're on mute there. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the suicide mission because I was kind of like when they said, okay, his goal is to go and attack Apocalypse. I'm like, wait, this is – again, how is this making sense of what, what we know of Gog and Magog from Kingdom Come? And then they said, oh, you're going to go and attack it, not not to win the fight, but to have all the heroes from Earth be killed. I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Very Mark Wade thing to do. So, yeah, definitely enjoying um, the tie-in uh, to Kingdom Come for sure. Uh, all right, up next we have Batman, Santa Claus, Silent uh, Night number three, written by Jeff Parker. Art by Michelle Bandini and Trevor Hairsign, colored by Alex Sinclair, lettered by Pat Broso. This continues to be a, a really fun story. Um, I do wish we had a little bit more of Santa Claus. We don't get a lot of Santa Claus in this issue. Uh, we get a few jokes about uh, Aquaman and what and what have you. <clears throat> Jeff Parker does seem to have a, a pretty good handle on who these characters are. Um, and I certainly in, enjoyed uh, the sort of young Kansas farm boy aspect to Superman that Parker gives us when he gets a chance to meet Santa Claus uh, for the first time. Oh, you remember me, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, this continues to be a, a lot of fun. We get a little twist at the end, a little hint that maybe Krampus, who we, we thought was the bad guy, isn't really the bad guy. Maybe there's somebody sort of pulling his strings and that somebody 
uh, has gone from controlling Krampus to controlling Superman and has uh, released a bunch of, uh, the, of the monster kind and their, um, and, and some of them are gigantic when you uh, look at them in terms of, you know, how large they are. Uh, it's a fantastic final scene with Santa Claus, you know, looking up at them and they're uh, quite large. So looking forward to the, uh, the epic battle, obviously this ties into a lot of um, kind of Western mythology, a lot of um, Norse mythology. Uh, when you talk about Germanic mythology as well, when you talk about um, Klaus and Krampus and all that sort of thing. So I'm really enjoying this. I think one of the things that really helps uh, because it is such a large cast and the story is a little bit sprawling, it, it it can feel a little bit choppy at times because it's moving at such a fast pace. But one of the things that really helps is that it's a weekly release. So I don't really have time to, to feel lost. I, I pretty much remember what was happening um the previous issue. So again, I think really fun that DC is doing this as a weekly series celebrating the holiday season. So, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of having two artists on here, Trevor Hairstein and Michelle Banditi. The Banditi art is fantastic. Hairstein's art, like whenever I see it, I can't help but think of deceased, right? The title that he did with Tom Taylor, <laughs> yeah. which is so antithetical to who Santa Claus is, you know, <laughs> yeah. talking about joy and love and whatever. And all I can think of is, Oh, there's deceased wonder woman with, you know, zombies and the anti-life <laughs> equation and all that. So I kind of wish they'd pick somebody whose style was a little closer to Bandini's, but again, my minor nitpick, obviously uh, on a weekly series, I'm sure Bandini kind of needed the help. That's a, that's a big ask to, to have somebody, finish all these pages. I mean, I don't know how long ago they started this, uh, but I, I'm enjoying it. And yeah, we've got uh, Santa Claus as a, a canonical superhero in the DC universe with this. what do you think of it? I, I really like that Jeff writer, Jeff Parker is incorporating a lot of heroes of the DC universe because this, this is exactly what we should get. This is, this feels like not just the justice league, it, teaming up with Santa Claus, but it feels like all the heroes outside the Justice League as well. This, this feels very uh, all-inclusive, though. I feel like this is a DC Universe adventure with, uh, and it's nice to see Hawkgirl, uh, 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 Joe, uh, Joe Mulane, the Green Lantern, and uh, Black Canary all show up here, Wonder Woman. I mean, and, and all of them have something to do. They're not wasted. I mean, they're, they're actually doing something constructive. They're not just there for the sake of making an appearance. And they're all working together. And I love the fact that all of them, especially Blue Beetle, he's always like at the side saying, wait a minute. What do you mean? That's like Santa? <laughs> you know, it's like everyone sort of has the same sort of similar reaction. Wait a minute. You mean that's actually the Santa? I mean, it, I mean, I know it's kind of an obvious inside joke, but it's it's funny because – and. It works surprisingly well because we say again we're in the third we're in the third chapter of this story and it is kind of cool kind of surprising that yeah we actually have a Santa Claus in continuity in the DC universe that's kind of cool that's kind of fun to see and uh, this is a fun story and with Krampus you know possessing Superman it makes sense you want to give the villain some some more gravitas than just being basically a grumpy old Grinch. He's got to have some powers in order to challenge the heroes and taking over Superman is a way to do that. And maybe being able to somehow mind control some of the uh, heroes by giving them a bah humbug sort of attitude is, is kind of in keeping with the, the opposite of the Christmas spirit and enhances the story. And, uh, you know, we got one more issue to go on a weekly basis uh, for the month of December. This is definitely the way to tell the story. And um, I agree with you on the hair scene art. Uh, I, uh, 
it's impossible for me, uh, and obviously apparently for you, when Wonder Woman uh, comes down and, and attacks one of those, I don't know, those odd-looking bird Harpies. creatures. Yeah, har- yeah, harpies. Yeah, I mean, it looks like a scene right out of Deceased. <laughs> it really does. Yeah. So it's kind of hard not to think, oh, my God, is are the undead going to show up? <laughs> but no, it was it was still pretty cool though, and uh, it uh, it was only it was still an epic scene without with Hawk Girl, uh, uh, Joe Mullane, Green Lantern, and Wonder Woman uh, kicking some ass there. So that was still a lot of fun. But no, this is this continues to be uh, a very pleasant surprise in this uh, in this uh, Christmas season for DC. Yeah, the only thing that I think might have been better served um, w- would have been if if they'd started it a week sooner. And the only reason I say that is because it it would have been better, you know, this is the, the the last Tuesday before Christmas, right? Like the next Tuesday that we have is going to come after after Christmas already come. The next Tuesday is, you know, the, the 26th. So if they had done this, uh, if they had started this, I, I guess it actually would have had to be two weeks sooner, right? Because the final issue, issue four, comes out on, on the day after Christmas, the 26th. I think if they'd started it two weeks sooner uh, – and then we had the last, the final issue last week. What they could have done is they could have released the collected edition on the on the nineteenth, you know, the, the the Tuesday before Christmas. Because then, like you said, this is so so great in that it has just about every DC hero uh, show up at some point and get to uh, interact with Santa Claus. What what a great Christmas gift, right? For a young kid, you get a chance to see other heroes you might not be familiar with, uh, some heroes that are your favorite, uh, you know, Hymerius, Blue Beetle, or whoever. Um, but again, it, it's it's just something I thought of would have made sense marketing wise for DC to do that. But yeah. uh, the story itself is is uh, a lot of fun. So uh, also, I'll just mention real briefly, there's a Joker Harley uncovered issue one. This is one of those um, issues that collects a bunch of variant covers that DC has been doing lately. I, I have mixed feelings on these. Like it's great for somebody who doesn't have a chance to get some of the variant covers, especially ones that are ratio variants, because you know they're more expensive than just cover price, so it's a chance to get it. Um, but at the same time, it's like DC selling this, and it's all profit for them, right? Like they've already paid for this artwork; they're just collecting it. They already own it. They just throw it in a book and then sell it. So it feels a little, a little bit like a cash grab. So I, you know, I certainly wouldn't you know buy any of these except. I say that I did buy the Lee Bermejo one because he's, you know, one of my favorite cover artists, um, even though I own most of the Lee Bermejo covers that are in it. So, you know, if you're a fan of, of Joker and Harley, you're probably going to want to pick this up, get a chance to, to own these covers. Most of the covers do have Joker and Harley. Then as you get a little bit farther in the book, some are Joker and are just Joker. Some are uh, Joker. Yeah. Joker and punchline. Some are, um, uh, Harley and Poison Ivy. So there are, there is a little bit of variety, but yeah, er, early on, it's all Joker and uh, Joker and Harley. There weren't any covers in here that really blew me away. I mean, I certainly wouldn't purchase this. And we're talking about two characters that I think are grossly overused. So uh, anything to add on, on that Rocky? Uh, no, I just love the Brian Boland cover with punchline, but that was a, that was a retailer incentive. So I'll never, I'll never own that unfortunately, but yeah. that's, that's my one, well, I'm not gonna. You know my rant and raving about yeah. my variant covers, but we'll, we'll let I'll let that go. Just the season. Yeah. <laughs> no, Bob. Uh, all right. I'm next. Yeah, uh, Bob. Exactly. Up next, we have Harley Quinn, Black, White, and Redder, number six. Three stories in here. Harley's all the way down. Starting art by Bruno Redondo. Letters by Wes Abbott. 
is uh, is the first story. And then the second story, I <laughs> this is really weird, so I'm not really sure. So in the, the press, the digital press preview copy that we got, it says that – actually, you know, I might be able to figure it out here because um, the first story is listed as – Chapter 16. Okay. So yeah. So they, they put the wrong title page. They, they went from 16 to 18. Um, so actually the, it's the, it's chapter 17 is the, is the second story. It's, uh, Dr. Quinzel's couples counseling written by Dennis Camp. Uh, Fabio Veris is the artist. Letters by Pratt Broso. That one was, was actually pretty enjoyable. Um, it's this couple that is arguing on the street, hardly kidnaps them, puts them through some, um, uh, Couples counseling, they they end up coming together and escaping together. Uh, it's actually pretty fun. And the last one is Sirens Rising from writer Tinny Howard. Breakdowns by Wook Jin Clark. Uh, finishes are by Bab Star. Colors by Rachel Cohen and letters by Becca Carey. And that's sort of an origin of how the Gotham City Sirens got together. So that one's kind of fun as well. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Gotham City Sirens, it was Poison Ivy, Harley Quinn, and Catwoman. Uh, but for me, where this really shines, uh, and, th- and I got to say that this is one of the better issues of Harley Quinn, Black, White, and Redder in that I enjoyed all the stories. So a lot of the stories have been like, how, what was the point of that? Uh, but far and away, the best Harley Quinn story that I've read of all of them, um, of any of the six issues, is this Harley All the Way Down story by Bruno Redondo, who most people will know as an artist. He's great at giving Harley a voice, at, but also being the voice of... Uh, like us fans that are frustrated with the way that DC treats Harley because she herself kind of voices that frustration. She breaks the fourth wall. She talks about how uh, they've just pulled her in every different direction and um, you know, a a lesser character, it wouldn't work. Um, But yeah, I was a little surprised to, to see this got through editorial. Maybe nobody's paying attention. Um, But I I thought it was great. And I think a lot of fans who are frustrated with how Harley's been treated uh, will probably feel the same way uh, as well. Plus, he designs a new costume for her, which is really cool as well. Um, ultimately, obviously, there's no resolution, but it, it would be great if uh, – can we hand over the reins of Harley to Bruno Redondo huh. and say no one else gets to write Harley Quinn except <laughs> Bruno for like a, a year? Could you imagine if he got to establish like a new status quo with Harley? And then everybody that comes after him has to like stick to that status quo instead of pulling her in a thousand different directions. Exactly. And draw her and draw her. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Different costume, different attitude. Yeah. I I get it. I get it. Right. She's a cash cow at this point. Um, But it's, yeah, it's frustrating. So anyway, any thoughts on any of these stories? Uh, Yeah. I'm just going to comment on, on the, on the first story, which uh, you were kind enough to uh, give me five minutes before we came on, because I said straight up, I I stopped, I I kind of stopped reading these, these black Harley Quinn, black, white, red, or because of my, the very frustration that Bruno Redondo uh, explains in in his very first story with Harley Quinn breaking the fourth wall. You told me to read it because it's very timely because you and I have uh, often the criticism. I, I certainly have. I, I, I can't stand how Harley Quinn is everything to everyone. And that's not, that's not consistent writing. And, but, but she is a character that, that, that writers can get away with writing her however they want with no consistency. She's good. She's bad. She's anti-hero. She's everything. When you, when you're everything to everybody, you're nothing in, in, in my view. Uh, to me, pick a lane and stay in your lane. But Harley Quinn does seem to get away with it. And, uh, 
and she gets away with it even more so than the Joker does. The Joker never gets away with being a bad, a good guy. The Joker doesn't get away with being. I mean, the Joker is, you know, the Joker at least is he. Even when the Joker's written out of character, he's still psychotic, but just a version. But whereas Harley, no, she's. I don't know. She's just, she's too much of a, too much of an aberration. And thank you, Bruno Redondo for saying the, 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 the part that, you know, the quiet part out loud, because every time I always think, I always thought that maybe I was kind of, maybe, you know, maybe I'm just, ah, I'm just another guy who's bitching about Harley. I'm an older white guy. Maybe I should just keep my mouth shut. I, I've, I've been accused of that. And sometimes rightly so. Okay. I'll, I'll fall upon my sword. I was pleasantly surprised when you pointed this story out to me. It's like, thank you, Bruno Redondo, a, a, a class, a, a class, a uh, artist like that penning a story like this. I mean, man, I'm impressed. Thank you, Bruno. And Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was waiting to hear you say something about it. You're like, oh, I can't, I can't stomach those. And, and I get it. Like so often we read it and it was like, what was the, what was the point of that? And I'm not even the Harley fan that you are. So I, I can, yeah, really understand your frustration being that, you know, she, you're, you know, she means so much more to you than, than she does to me um, to have her. Yeah. So inconsistent. And uh, yeah, like, again, it, it is a strength of the character that she is so malleable, but at the same time, like you said, pick a lane. There's uh, there's something to be said for consistency. You know, if you want to write her differently or if she wants to be different in different mediums, like if the HBO Max cartoon is that's different, if she's different on the big screen, if she's different in a, a black label book, I get that. But books that are just like regular DC continuity, there should be some consistency <laughs> uh, instead of, yeah, oh, look, here's in Sanctuary. She's defeating the Trinity. But then over here, she's you know, struggling in her own book to, you know, beat up somebody who doesn't even have superpowers. It's, it's maddening. So anyway, uh, I'm very curious to hear what you have to say about this one. Up next is Hot Girl number six, written by Jadzia Axelrod, drawn by Amon K. Nahelipan, colors by Alex Guermas and Carrie Strachan, letters by Hassan Atman Elhal. This is the uh, sixth and final issue. What'd you think? Well, you know, sometimes my words come back to haunt me and they've haunted me. They'll haunt me right now because I, I accuse some writers of Harley Quinn to pick a lane. Well, Jack's writer, Jackson, uh, uh, Jack's, Jackson, Jackson Axelrod, she did, she did pick a lane with Hawkgirl. I just, I don't particularly like the lane, but I can't, I can't fault her for not picking a lane. She definitely picked the lane. It was just one that I prefer that Hawk, that Kendra. You're, taking the, you're taking the off ramp. If, you, yes, if she's going to be in that lane, you're taking yeah. the off. But, uh, but I, I, I will, I will, uh, I, I will focus. I, I will start off by focusing on the positive in turn in the spirit, tis the season in the spirit of uh, the Christmas spirit. And, and I'll deal with, I'll do the bah humbug thing last. The, the the potential positives out of this is that Kendra Saunders in this as you know as Hawkgirl she the uh, uh, Axelrod has always conceived of for for Kendra Saunders that her past lives were always they're they're scripted like ghosts most of us think when coming out leading into this Hawk uh, Hawkgirl series yes uh, Kendra always had past lives but they weren't ghosts that haunted her. They were, she had memories of past lives, just like the Hawkman did. They weren't ghosts that haunted her. But in this series, Kendra's past lives were literally ghosts that haunted her and talked with her and whispered her and, and, and almost like driving her crazy and insane. That was clearly something that Axelrod just sort of pulled out of the air. There's no evidence of it in any of her past iterations. But what it's now become clear with this sixth and final issue of this series why Axelrod was doing that. And that is because in... In 
Valpicula, Valpicula, the, the villain, who uh, was trying to get home to the nth world. And in the nth world, you, the way the rules work in the nth world, apparently, is that you gotta you gotta make bargains and you gotta make wishes and and uh, uh, to oversimplify things, the explosion in issue five that led to Hawkgirl ending up in the nth world uh, basically destroyed the barrier between the nth world and our reality. And the only way to do the only way to fix that barrier and prevent the destruction of our universe and the nth world is if there's a more bargains, millions of bargains need to be made. Millions of lives have to pay the price, but there's no lives to sacrifice. Where, where can you find a million lives to sacrifice? Ah, wait a minute. We got all these ghosts that are in Kendra's mind. So Kendra sacrifices all her past lives to save the nth world and our universe from destruction. And she does so with the help, of course, of galaxy. And that's what happens. And as a reward for that sacrifice, the, the king of the nth world, Aesop, uh, crowns and knights Kendra Saunders as as Hawkgirl, Knight of the Nth World. So that's kind of cool. When I put it like that, and, and, and that's the way I'm going to choose to look at it because I want to focus on the positive, that's kind of cool. Having said that, how we got there, and I'm not going to belabor all the points I made on the previous five issues. I think this has been a very messy series. I don't really like the road or the journey getting here, but I will say that at least, at least now, I guess Kendra has gotten rid of the voices. They're now, her past lives are now just memories, like they should have always been in the first place, quite frankly. And she's got a new, a new, a new life, a new path. She's got a cool new, now her mace is made of 100% nth metal. It can, it can take whatever shape she wants because there's, it's got some magical properties. Uh, she's got a, she's got a direct connection to the nth world. The nth world is still kind of sort of a mystery. There's some rules of the nth world that I won't go into here. There, it's a little bit, so they're a little bit odd. It's not entirely clear. I think there's some inherent contradictions in the rules of the nth world, but I won't belabor the point. Uh, but I think overall here, I get it. It works. Uh, Kendra's sexuality is still sort of an open question by the end here. It's clear that her high school, her, her college friend does have uh, some affection for her, but that, you know, not uh, Axelrod didn't go completely to that side of the equation. So that's still an open question, Kendra's sexuality, you know, but she's got a new lease on life. So that's still an open question. So uh, this series ends with a new new potential for Kendra Saunders that can lead to interesting future stories with the Nth world, with Kendra being a knight of the Nth world. And that's what I choose to focus on. I won't go the Bahamug route. I did that for five issues. I'll just focus on that. And I think that there are some cool concepts here moving forward. And look, see, I can be positive. <laughs> so what do you think? So I, yeah, so I tend, I tend to agree with you um, that I, I, like where we, I like where we ended up. Where we ended up feels like it has potential. It feels like Kendra's in a good place. But here's the thing, right? I, I will throw a little Bahamug in there. Um, <laughs> I sort of feel like where we ended up with Kendra is not so far from where it felt like Kendra was before the series started, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. You 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 mentioned uh, you know this this problem of the past lives you know haunting her like ghosts and you know causing her some mental health struggles and what have you that that had never been a, a story point a character point until this. So Axelrod introduces it as a problem and then resolves it. And we're like, oh, great, it's resolved. Hey, that's awesome. But if she hadn't done it in the first place, it wouldn't have needed to be resolved. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I get it. Like 
Kendra's got a little bit more of a, su- a supporting cast. She's got a little, a little more question. Um, she's left some of the trauma that's kind of inherent in her origin behind. You know, some people choose to th- think that her origin's a little bit problematic. I feel like it's you. It can be when you look at it. You know, in terms of you know abuse and what have you. Uh, kind of a product of the time that she was created. I don't think that that gets, uh, you know, her origin and the things she's been through, sexual abuse and what have you, gets a editorial approval these days, uh, to be honest with you. So, you know, getting rid of some of that, I think, is, is you know, a net positive for the character. But in terms of this issue itself, I, I sort of feel like this issue really epitomizes the the entire series very, very well. The first half of the issue, when we're introduced to Nth World, uh, everything, like, it almost feels like word salad. Oh, am I reading the size Spurrier book here? Everything is weird and esoteric and just jumps around. And then, Oh, now here's Aesop. Oh, here's, uh, here's the, the mustache twirling villain, Velpecula. I, it just felt very messy. And then we start to get to the resolution and then it's like a complete 180 and very much enjoyable. And, and it ends on a, a positive note. It ends in a good place. Uh, but why does, why does Enthworld have to be so, uh, just wonky, just so crazy and, and esoteric. It's like Axelrod probably has these great, big, huge ideas for Nth World, and it's been mentioned, Nth World has been mentioned as a place throughout the entire series, but there just wasn't the real estate to explore it until, four, you know, four or five pages at the beginning of the final issue. Like, it, too much. You, you've tried to put too much in here. You wanted to put Galaxy in here because she's your creation. You want her as a supporting character for Hawkgirl. Uh, okay, I get it, but it, it too much. You try to put too much in the series, and ultimately it ends up feeling choppy, and it, it didn't, I think, live up to the potential. I mean, people were very excited for this. Um, you know, there's no Hawk book at all. There's no Hawkman. This was the only Hawk uh, girl book coming out. Um, Robert Venditti was the last one that did a Hawkman series. It was very well received, even though the sales kind of dipped toward the end, and that's why it got canceled. So there's and there's a pretty big fan contingent, bigger than you would think, that are big fans of uh, of Hawkman and Hawkgirl, Hawkwoman, and uh, you know I never saw any of them that really liked this. So it'd be interesting to see how they uh, how they kind of rate it, what their thoughts are on the end. Because again, uh, you and I both think it you know it ends on a somewhat positive note. Even if it feels that way because of what Axelrod did to, uh, in the beginning, and and again, like the over the over stuffing of the story, I think is why we end up with Velpecula as a, a very two dimensional villain. There wasn't really room to really explore her in a way that she could be relatable or we could empathize with her. Um, just yeah, try try to do a little bit too much, I think, uh, ultimately. So. Uh, we'll see w- uh, what comes of uh, Hot Girl next, where she shows up next. Be curious to see that. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Green Lantern War Journal, issue number four from writer Philip Kennedy Johnson. Art is by Montos. Colors by Adriana Lucas. Letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, this is a really uh, – I really enjoyed this book. What do you think? I – yeah. Uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson. I am uh, – <clears throat> I'm really enjoying – it's great. This is actually my favorite Green Lantern. Actually, I, and uh, it's funny. I'm, I'm putting together my top 20 uh, DC uh, comics for 2023, and it was it was actually surprisingly enough, it was easier than I thought. And I, I won't harp, I won't focus too much on that right now, other than to say that I'm looking forward to doing my top 20 DC. But I, I, it's it was very interesting when I thought when I think about the stories that I remember, 
as opposed to, you know, if, if you were to ask me from week to week over the last you know year, you know, I could tell you, obviously my list would change with my top 20 VC, but when I like being able to look back and say, okay, you know, what stories really resonated with me? And more specifically, which ones do I remember? And that's the big one. Which ones do I remember without having to go back? And like the ones that I just feel resonate with me. And uh, and when I think of Green Lantern War Journal, this is the one that actually resonates with me the most. And I think it's because we we kept getting teasers of John Stewart, uh, uh, Green Lantern, and we and we got the teasers for like e- even even coming out of Jeffrey Thorne's run and in, into his PKJ's run, this idea of the Revenant Queen and this other universe and the Revenant Queen coming to find a John Stewart of this universe and and it just it had the it had a, it feels like something terrifying is going to be happening and just the idea that we have these other this other green lantern core coming to our universe to to find and recruit john lantern to to fight the revenant queen who's trying to take over this universe and and to spread to spread her her power across the multiverse and this particular issue continues by pkj's you know really it feels like an epic story to me in my view and the art as well I mean, the art by Amontos is just fantastic. It really resonates. And, and I love that he's incorporating the United Planets. We haven't seen a lot of the United Planets. We saw, I like the politics of the United Planets. We got remnants of the United Planets being manipulated by Mongol in War World. Again, a story written by PKJ. I like that he's incorporating the United Planets here with the, with, uh, in a story called entitled Rebuild here in this particular issue with John Stewart Green Lantern. And I like the politics here that we have a, a United Planets, essentially politician who is uh, trying to vie for power and he's corrupt. And he and he specifically was using the, the Green Lantern Varon uh, to, 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 uh, for his own uses. But of course, we know Varon has been killed and is now possessed by the Revenant, Revenant Queen. And, and, uh, and so... Uh, They've got reason to believe that maybe Veron is dead, but we know he's possessed by the, by the Revenant Queen. And we, uh, what this series is, is as John Stewart continues to struggle with the infection because he's been infected by uh, by the Revenant Queen. And I like that uh, that again, PKJ is utilizing the storyline of the, of the Genesis energy that, that came from War World. They utilize the Genesis energy in this issue to try to empower up the, 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 the power ring, because what's different is that when Veron was lost, when he died, it, unlike in our universe where a green lantern dies, the ring finds a new host, a new ring bearer. In this case, the ring dies too. So they, they utilize the Genesis energy to re-empower the ring. And John Stewart utilizes that ring as well. So we got a new, we got John Stewart with sort of a, a ring that's sort of a hybrid ring between uh, a, a ring that's from another universe, but also is infected a little bit with with Revenant Queen energies, and so it's it's interesting. And and at the end, he becomes empowered. He come, he becomes powered up, and now their job is to go and do some hunting and and hunt down the Revenant Queen and stop her spread. I, I just thought this was this is just excellent and. Just the, the the way that the way this is all playing out, you can really see that I feel like this is another hero's journey for John Stewart, and this is done in such a such an exci- I think a very exciting way, and this is going to read excellent as a trade. I don't often 
say to myself, I'm going to buy the trade of a series, but I might end up buying the trade of this. And I'm almost hoping that they make this a hardcover because this is, I'm enjoying this more than his War World saga. And I'm enjoying this more than his uh, action comics run. I think this is, I think this is PKJ's best DC work to date. So what do you think? You know, it's hard to, it's hard to argue with that. Um, Cause here's the thing, like he's, we talk all the time about what a great world builder Philip is. Um, you know, uh, Wonder Woman, D- Dead Earth, and um, wait, no, that was uh, that was uh, Danny Warren Johnson. What, what's the one I'm thinking of uh, that he did? It was a Black Label series. Um, uh, New Gods or uh, uh, Last God? Yeah, Last God. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then same thing when he was building on um, uh, what's come before in the in the world of Aliens over at Marvel. Right, the guy's such a great world builder. So. Yeah, it's. I, I kind of feel like he's one of those writers where whatever his most recent thing that he does, I'm going to be like, oh, that's the best thing he's done. Like he continues to get better. The reason this um, feels so great, this uh, War Journal series feels so great and, and feels like the best thing he's done is because it builds on everything that's come before. You know, you mentioned it has ties to what we saw in War World. It has ties to uh, even some of the things that Jeffrey Thorne did in the previous John Stewart Green Lantern run. Um, it has ties to things that um, that Brian Michael Bendis did with the United Planets. So it's not just that Philip is so great at world building, but he takes the building blocks that other people have laid and he he incorporates them into his story to make it more exciting, to make it make more sense. And as a reader, you feel like you're getting value. You feel like it, the stories that you read matter, right? Like that's it's the reason that so many of us loved DC so much because – it has a tighter continuity. It has a sense of legacy. Uh, there's a lot of chatter these days, especially uh, on social media, about kind of the the struggles that comic retail is having. What you know, there's debate. There's no one simple answer. It's a very complicated issue. But you know, why why are sales down? Like sales for comics are up overall, but specifically for Marvel and DC, that's not the case. Why is that? People talk about quality of story, this and that. Um, one of the things that that you want as a reader is you want to know that the stories you're reading matter. You know, when you're reading these shared universes, that's why you read them. Uh, you know, nobody wants to read something if it gets thrown out the following week and it, and it doesn't matter. The story and continuity changes. That's what's so great about what Philip Kennedy Johnson is doing here. He's making those stories that came before that he's borrowing elements from. He's making them matter even more. He's making them more important. He's making them more relevant. So that's really fantastic. You mentioned the, uh, the idea that, in the, the the universe of the Revenant Queen comes from when a lantern is killed. Uh, a, it, it's stated that when a lantern who's infected by the Revenant Queen energy is killed, that's when their ring dies. The fact that they take one of those rings, they imbue it with Genesis energy, and John Stewart is able to use it. That, that again, it's just an exciting, fascinating idea, right? So it's got some possible Revenant queen connection or energy still it's got genesis energy which is not really something we've seen in a green lantern ring before and it's got john stewart one of the greatest ring wielders of all time wielding it like it's just this this unique artifact and what's one of the things that we talk about when uh we talk about these these families of heroes right superman family green lantern um even spider-man batman whatever it's like when you make so many of them then they're all less special Right, they're less unique. They matter less. 
but I get why they do it. Everybody wants to kind of have, you know, the Green Lantern to call their own. But God, there's so many. There's so many now. This is a way to really make Jon Stewart unique and make him different, make him stand out without throwing the baby out with the bathwater like Jeffrey Thorne did and making him this, like, God-like being who can do whatever he wants and just snap his fingers. Um, this is a different way to do it. And I can't wait to see where it goes in the hands of Philip Kennedy Johnson. I do have one question. It seemed to me, Rocky, that after he confronted Varon in, in that other realm or whatever and, and had the ring for the first time and then shows back up in our reality, if you will, he was no longer infected. But I'm not sure that's the I got that sense. But maybe the fe- yeah. infection is just under control by the ring. Like I'm not, I'm not really yeah. sure if that- he's infected still or not. I think that's an open question. I'm not sure either. I I think it's implied that he was able to, the Genesis energy uh, managed to maybe destroy it uh, when the Genesis energy imbued the ring, uh, destroyed the infection. But uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, That might be something. It might be maybe, uh, I know where you're going with this, I think. It's sort of like, is it going to be like a parallax infection? Is it going to be something that slowly infects Jon Stewart over time and comes back to haunt him? (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, three or four arcs from now. Oh, by the way, remember when he was infected? Yeah, it'll make his hair turn gray and he'll have the streak like Hal Jordan did, right? (laughs) So yeah, I guess we'll we'll wait and see. And I have to mention as we're winding down on Green Lantern here, the Montos art is is picture perfect. This is one of those... um, Situations where DC editorial picked the, the the artist that has the perfect kind of style and aesthetic feel for the story that Philip Kennedy Johnson is telling. It's not super super clean. It's a little messy, but the story's a little messy too in terms of everything that John's got, uh, you know, being thrown at him right now, being infected, dealing with lanterns from other universes, dealing with the Revenant Queen and what have you. So great choice on artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Justice League versus Godzilla versus Kong, issue number three. Brian Buccioletto is the writer. Christian Duce is the artist. Luis Guerrero on colors. Um, Richard Starkin and Jimmy Bettencourt on letters. I don't think that there's going to be lines around the block at comic shops tomorrow to pick up this book. I think a lot of people that don't read comics don't know about it. I think a lot of people that even do read comics that maybe don't read DC don't know anything about it, but Superman dies. <laughs> and we had an issue previously where Superman died and Superman 75, where it was covered on the six o'clock news and people did line up around the block and it sold millions and millions of copies. And as fun as this series is, and as much as I love Brian Buccioletto, I don't think, unfortunately this is going to sell millions of millions of copies, but Superman has died. Superman has died at the uh, hands of Godzilla. Um, whether or not he'll remain dead, I guess we'll see. Uh, but this continues to be a heck of a lot of fun. I love the agency that Brian Buccioletto immediately kind of gives with Superman off the uh, off the page, so to speak, uh, that it, it kind of transfers to Supergirl. We'll see how... She kind of takes the reins and uh, see if she's able to save her cousin. Batman continues to have a very strong voice, even though he only shows up um, for, you know, the final few pages here. Uh, It's clear that he's going to be, uh, you know, very important to the story moving forward. And maybe he's going to have a hand in saving Superman. Uh, This, much like Silent Night, gives a chance for all the different heroes that are part of the battle here. They each get their their moments, you know, Hawkgirl's here, Flash, Green Lantern. 
their interaction's great. We have uh, Shazam, Billy Batson is here. Um, but at the end of the day, do you know who the star of this book is, the star of this particular issue is? It's the monsters. It's the monsters. And that's why a lot of people are going to be picking this up, right? Oh, I love Godzilla. I love King Kong. We get a chance to see Kong for the first time in this issue. Godzilla has proven to be very formidable in this story. He killed Superman. So uh, we'll see how that plays out as well. The Christian Ducey art is gorgeous. This may be the best work I've ever seen Ducey do. It feels big. It feels epic. Uh, he's doing a fantastic job of, of giving detail and giving scope to the story. These monsters feel dangerous and they feel gigantic. It's not the easiest thing to do, you know, to put in detail because a lot of times the camera's got to be zoomed way back in order for us to see just how large these monsters are. It, it makes it a little tougher to give context and body language to the heroes when they're in a, a panel with a large monster because they're so small. Um, but Ducey's been up to the challenge the entire time. And also the colors by Luis Guerrero. Uh, very primary, very bright, which gives it that, you know, classic superhero feel that I just love when it comes to a story like this. So this is an early favorite for one of my favorite series of the year uh, for next year because it, it won't finish in, in 2023. So I'll have to put it on my list for next year. But, yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying this. And the uh, the covers that roar, I did. They finally came out. I was able to get a copy of each. Um <laughs> And they're still in my car. I, bought, I got them last week, uh, I think on Thursday, and they're still in my backseat of my car. And what's funny is sometimes I'll turn a corner and I'll, I don't know, maybe they shift or something and they'll roar. It'll be like, roar. the first time it happened, I was like, what? What's that noise? Where's that coming from? And I was, oh, it's the, it's the comic in my backseat. And uh, I picked my daughter up from school the other day. And yeah, we were turning the corner uh, from her school onto the other street. And yeah, one of them roared and she was like, what's that noise? It was uh, it was hilarious. So yeah. uh, anyway, what are you uh, what are you thinking on Justice League Godzilla versus Kong number three? Good, uh, bad. Yeah, I enjoy this. This is actually getting better. This is actually my favorite issue so far. And uh, you know, my favorite character in this issue is actually Supergirl and King Kong. It was nice to see King Kong, and it was so funny because it never even occurred to me <laughs> that you know here you got this beautiful blonde woman floating in the air, flying Supergirl in front of King Kong. And it suddenly occurred to me the obvious, well, King Kong's going to fall in love with Supergirl, you know, because King Kong loves blondes. Everybody knows that, right? And who hasn't seen King Kong, any movie with King Kong, and you got a good looking blonde, you know, half naked, Kong likes blondes, right? And I just thought it was hilarious that, you know, just when you think that, you know, he reaches for Supergirl, intrigued, you know, and maybe you're thinking he's going to, they're going to befriend each other. And then what does Supergirl do? Supergirl just conks someone right in the nose and, and so much for that love affair. There's going to be a, there's going to be no love affair between Supergirl and Kong. I don't think, you never know. But I thought that was a, I thought that was a really nice callback. Uh, by Bucoletto, and uh, again, beautiful art by Christian Duche, like you said. And I really enjoyed that, and I really loved how Supergirl stepped up to the plate here. And that the fact that Superman's off the playing field, let's face it, Superman was incapacitated by a, by a combination of Godzilla's uh, uh, electrical, whatever, energy breath, and Shazam's lightning. So I don't think Superman's dead, although probably in a, in a deep state of a coma or while his body's recuperating is probably what's happening. But it's actually... Nice to have Superman taken off the playing field in a believable manner and in, in, in a very believable manner, because remember, we got the combination of the magical 
Shazam lightning, Superman's vulnerable to magic, and you don't even know the source of the power and the energy of Godzilla's power. Uh, now that Godzilla and Kong and the and the Titans, Titan monsters are in the universe, so all of this stuff from a comic book perspective and the and the comic books little boy geek in me, especially watching Monarch and I uh, want to go to Godzilla minus one the movies. I'm just having a blast with this absolute blast, and I, I and again. Uh, I, I'm very happy, just like with the Silent Night series that we're reviewing. I love to see all these, all the DC superheroes show up, and we got villains as well showing up. And Lex Luthor at the end uh, is up to no good, finding another bit of the mystery, uh, which will probably make this even more intriguing because more and more Titans are showing up in our reality, and it's causing havoc on the Earth. And they're more than a they're more than a handful for DC superheroes. And the villains aren't doing much to help the heroes. They're sort of sitting back and let the heroes take the brunt of the damage, dealing with Godzilla and King Kong and what have you. And I don't know. I, uh, this this is this is a lot of fun. And it's I I really hope that I I don't know what the sales are like for this, but I thought this the, on the surface. Yes, there's no question that DC is is trying to turn as much of this into a money grab as possible. Uh, they are a corporation after all. They want to, they want to make money. Uh, but I will say that um, this is probably if, if this is probably worth it. This is probably going to be a pretty cool trade paperback at the end. If, if the adrenaline rush of the story continues like this and, the, and, and if, the, if the ending is as fun as the journey's been so far, this will be a, a pretty great series to collect and trade or inevitable hardcover, especially if that hardcover roars back at you like the comic books you bought. <laughs> yeah, you wonder, did Brian take Superman off the playing field because – just it's harder to have him there because he's so powerful. He should be able to take out some of these monsters, maybe other than Godzilla. Um, or, or, you know, was it just to show how formidable Godzilla is? Uh, hard to say, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it all plays out, but a, a wonderful series, a lot of fun so far. Uh, speaking of Superman up next, we have Superman number nine written by Joshua Williamson, guest artist on this issue, Bruno Redondo, uh, colors by Adriana Lucas, letters by Ariana Mayer, um, what do you think of this? Uh, first, I want to give a shout out to the, uh, the 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 cover with Santa Claus with an homage to Action Comics uh, number uh, Action Comics uh, number one, nineteen thirty eight, uh, with Santa Claus picking up the sleigh and the, the elf panicking out front. I thought it's my favorite cover. I honestly, I, I did order it, but if it's a, I don't know if it's a very if it's a ratio cover. If it is, my retailer won't get it. But if it if it's a variant cover, I'll, I'll end up. I'll end up with it on my pull list, but I, that's, that's my favorite cover of this week. There's also a great cover with Superman uh, holding up the Daily Planet globe while handing a, a young child a teddy bear. I thought that was really nice by uh, Mikkel, uh, I It looks like Mikkel Shannon's art, but I don't think it is. But in any event, it's a really nice cover. And there's, there's, there's a lot of nice covers uh, this week. And there's one with Superman floating, hovering above the Daily Planet. And then a gorgeous cover B of uh, the um, uh, what is that the uh, the Silver Banshee is that who that is? Uh, yeah, Silver Banshee. Yeah, Silver I, Banshee, I think yeah. the the one the the cover where Superman's handing the teddy bear that's Bruno Redondo. Right. Uh, okay. I think Mikel Mikel Yanin did the one you're talking about the um, the Action Comics uh, homage. Homage. Yeah, but gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, as for the story itself, I. Uh, I thought that, you know, Williamson, you know, Action Comics, uh, I've been enjoying Superman more than Action Comics this past year. 
uh, just because I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of the expanded Superman family, and I like to focus more when it's more focused on Superman and Lois, quite frankly. And in this issue, there's a lot of heartfelt moments where Lois is worried about Superman because he was infected with kryptonite last last issue, where where he. Uh, well, you had to wear the suit, and he ultimately ended up uh, defeating the chained, and the chained is now incapacitated and is incapacitated and imprisoned at at Supercore. Uh, but Superman is is potentially dying here. He's in fact kryptonite radiation poisoning, and Lois is in front of him here, and a beautiful beautiful series of images, a nine panel grid with Lois just remembering the first day she met Clark, remembering their wedding day, remembering when John, their son, was born. It was just it's, it's some really nice, heartfelt moments, and Williamson's done a good job of scripting that. I'll be honest, uh, you know, G- Williamson, I think, has, as a writer, I, have in, I think his, he shines more, his best character moments as a writer uh, for DC have been in his Superman comics, and uh, more so than it, it was any other, any other of his DC work. And that's how come I'm, I'm, I, he's done a really good job here. I, I'm also, in, uh, Lena, Lena Luthor, uh, Lex Luthor's daughter now has a job at Supercore and she's a very intriguing character. Uh, and as you pointed out, she does seem to have Brainiac symbol on her forehead. Is she ultimately going to be revealed to be a tool of, of Brainiac somewhere down the road. I don't know. But she works at Supercore, and she now has access to all the information uh, of Supercore uh, that, that Superman or Lex have. And meanwhile, uh, meanwhile, Superman finally, he does wake up, and he, he slowly heals. But it's he, they, with the help of Mercy and Lois, they, they figure out that uh, farm, uh, Pharma and, and uh, Professor... What is it, Professor Rat? Rat, yeah, he's going yeah. to. Uh, they're they're going after. They're going to be going after Marilyn Moon Knight. So we get more of her, and she's still kind of a mystery. We don't know a lot about Marilyn Moonlight, but uh, Superman's new outfits. It looks a little bit corny, I think, and a little bit overdone, but I guess it can be forgiven. I, I frankly think Lex Luthor's suit looks far more cool <clears throat> than the than the. I, I think his Superman suit looks a little bit. I think it looks a little bit flamboyant and over the top. Uh, not that Lex is done, but I, I guess I just like Lex's uh, suit better. Uh, I find that Superman makes some see, he makes some changes to the suit that I think were were crazy. He uh, as Lex Lex Luthor rightly criticizes Superman, saying, "I, I built I gave you an, a suit that was the equivalent of a tank, and you converted it to into an ambulance." And uh, because you know Superman takes out some of the weapons that were in Luthor's suit, it just seemed like a really kind of dumb thing to do. I mean, even Batman wouldn't do that. But but I guess that's that's how Superman thinks. Superman is always Superman is always the fireman as opposed to the policeman. He's always thinking about rescue and help as opposed to battle and weapons. And so in that respect, that Williamson probably got it right, despite my my wish that Superman maybe was a little bit more aggressive uh, aggressively inclined sometimes. Uh, I love at the end where in in their battle against Pharma or Farm, uh, they uh, him and Marilyn Moonlight uh, apparently get shot back in time into the into the west into the past into the wild west of Metropolis where <laughs> where we end up meeting the characters of Nighthawk and Cinnamon. 
which is pretty cool. I haven't, I can't remember the last time I saw those characters. Uh, I can't remember. I know I've seen them before. And we got this new superhero character who doesn't have guns in the past with what looks like to be uh, Superman robbing a train with his white hat. And uh, so it's it's going to be interesting to see what, what the, where the next issue takes us. We're presumably going to get an origin for Marilyn Moonlight. And uh, I, I was intrigued by this. I'm, I, can, I continue to be, when I get Superman every month, this is another one of those titles that is certainly going to be in my top 20, my top 10, because I just, I enjoy it. I'm always, I'm, it's one of the first comics I read because I'm invested in the story and I'm curious as to where it's going. And I absolutely love the art. And so, yeah, I, I thought this continues to intrigue me and I'm, I'm captivated by the story and it pulls me in and I love the art. What about yourself? Yeah, I mean, great to see Bruno Redondo on an issue of uh, of uh, Superman. You know, he's yeah. not the regular artist. He's a regular artist over on Nightwing. So uh, he's missed a few issues of Nightwing lately. I'm sure one, one of them was to do this, which I find to be interesting, but I enjoy it. Uh, so whatever. Um, you know, Jamal Campbell's the regular artist on this, and his art has a certain charm to it. Bruno Redondo's art has that same sort of charm, so he's a good – you know, substitute, I guess. I mean, they probably asked him if he wanted to do it. It's probably like a bucket list thing for him to, to do a Superman story. Uh, you're right about the emotional moments too, um, that we get here and how great Josh Williamson is at doing that with Superman specifically. I think he tried it a lot on his flash. It worked to varying degrees, but nowhere near as uh, effective as it is here on Superman. I sort of thought based on kind of the first scene with Lois reading some get well letters from the citizens of Metropolis to Superman that we might have an issue uh, where Superman was in a coma the whole time. Um, but I, I think that uh, Joshua Williamson probably has too big of a story to tell. Because uh, I, I would have liked that. Um, if you remember the annual, that, the Superman annual that we got most recently, Superman wasn't in it. It was just a bunch of Superman-adjacent uh, storylines, which I really enjoyed. Sometimes it's great to see you know what other Superman-supporting characters are up to. Um, so I probably wouldn't have minded that, but at the same time, like I said, I think Joshua Williamson probably couldn't afford to have an issue without Superman. So he shows up or he wakes up. He, he, even though Mercy and Lois kind of, uh, try to persuade him to take it easy. He's, you know, he knows Farm and Graft are going to go after Marilyn Moon Knight. He wants to be there for her or what have you. Uh, I also agree with you on the suit. For me, the thing about the suit, like why, why? So it's supposed to protect him from kryptonite, but it appears to have no facial covering. But it's going to keep kryptonite gas from going in his ears. It, it's yeah. the fact that it covers his ears that just looks weird to me. Um, you know, you can see his hair, and that's fine. So either have it cover his, you know, his hair and everything. I, I don't know. It just – the head part is what just looks wonky to me. I, whatever. Um, I hope it protects him from kryptonite if that's what it's supposed to do. Um, I'll, and I'll leave it at that. But then as far as him going into the Old West – I have mixed feelings about that. It sort of reminds me of what, you know, speaking of Nightwing, it sort of reminds me of what they're doing in Nightwing right now. They wanted to put Dick Grayson in pirate clothes. So they came up with a reason why uh, he's in pirate clothes. It sort of feels like, oh, they just wanted Superman in the old West. So they found a reason to put him in the old West. Um, So it feels a little bit like, you know, shoehorning it in, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for the story to put him in the old West just because they thought it'd be a cool idea and it would sell some books. And that's what I thought when I, you know, first found out he was going to go to the old West, but I'll give a lot of credit to Joshua Williamson for 
having it happen in the story and having it make complete sense. We know Marilyn Moon Knight goes way, way back in Metropolis. Like her history with Metropolis goes back decades and decades, if not centuries. So I'm sure she's going to show up in the story probably, you know, when she was still alive and maybe we'll get her origin seeing Superman. You know, I just, you know, such a hypocrite. I said, ah, they just wanted to put Dick Grayson in pirate gear. Seeing Superman in the white hat, you know, with the Western gear, it looked cool. It looked cool for all my, oh, it's just, you know, wanting to put him in there. It's going to sell books. Yeah, that's that. If you're watching this on YouTube, yeah, that right there, that just looks cool. It just looks great. A um, little bit of uh, old school Elseworlds, right? Superman as a, a gunfighter, but of course he doesn't actually need guns. He can just use his, uh, his heat vision. So, yeah, curious to see where it's going to go from here. Obviously, the two little kids on the train are Farm and Graft. How are they still alive, you know, two centuries later? How does Marilyn Moon Knight fit in? Which uh, I'm very curious to learn more about her. She has one of the best designs that I've seen in recent memory. Like, Jamal Campbell did did a fantastic job. Her character design is amazing. The simple black and white, the straight-brimmed hat, uh, kind of the way she just glows on the page. Just uh, really amazing. So, yeah, I'm enjoying Superman uh, so, so much. I've said it a bunch, but I'll say it again. I can't remember the last time I was enjoying both action comics and Superman this much, probably since the Triangle era. So um, somebody's doing something right. Yeah. Uh, speaking of amazing issues, uh, we both gave a nod to the debut issue for Batman Offworld as our book of the week when it came out. We have the second issue here, uh, written by Jason Aaron, pencils by Doug Monkey. Inks by Jaime Mendoza, colors by David Barron, letters by Troy Petrie. Uh, what are your thoughts on Batman Offworld 2? <laughs> uh, I love this. I continued uh, the, the first issue. Uh, you know, Jason Aaron is just, you know, I know that he's got, he's a mixed bag at Marvel. You know, he started off with a bang at Marvel with his Thor run. And, uh, you know, he did a pretty good job on that. And then, and as, as his, as his various comics that he, did at Marvel sort of way continued on. I think that there was his writing became more and more divisive. And so it was an open question in some people's mind when he, when they heard they was coming to DC, what, what his debut would be. Well, this Batman off world, I think has been absolutely stellar and it's this type of writing that where he, he knows Batman and it's just fantastic. And I hope that his, his run on Superman, he's going to be writing a four-issue Bizarro run after PKJ and Action Comics. I'm hoping that will be equally as, uh, as interesting as this one. Batman is in space. Batman wants to know how to kick alien asses because there was an alien that showed up in Gotham and he didn't know how to beat the alien. So Batman, only obsessive bastard that he is, spends 572 whatever million dollars, gets a rocket ship, flies up into space and basically lets himself be captured because he wants to learn how to kick some alien ass. And while he's in this, essentially this prison ship, he meets this Tamaranian, this, this gorgeous Tamaranian uh, named uh, Ione or Ione. Uh, and uh, she, she basically is a she, – she has a rough exterior but a soft heart ultimately. And she's willing to train Batman along with this other robot that Batman befriends to train him how to fight and learn the weaknesses of various alien races that are also captive and prisoners on this, on this slave ship. And it's just, it's hilarious. I, I mean, there are scenes here that I just chuckle. I mean, Batman at one point, he's, he's in the engine room and he's the only person in the engine room to have had more than five cycles in the engine room because most people don't survive more than once, one cycle in this engine room. But not only does Batman survive, he has the unmitigated goal 
to A, never kill anybody, and two, to make it even worse, he's saving people's lives from, from being, from being, you know, because of the harsh work environment, as, as, as one of the, uh, as one of the aliens, uh, calls him, you stupid, what do you think you're doing? You, uh, this is why you're not a war stormer. I swear I've never seen anyone more terrible at killing than you. And me selling this to Batman. And Batman is slowly building up a reputation amongst the, the prison, amongst his fellow prisoners. He's, you know, he's the Batman. They don't call him Batman. He's the Batman. And of course, they don't know that his cape is just uh, a piece of clothing. And he's got, he's, he's building up a reputation more and more. And he's getting stronger and better. And he's, he's, he's learning. And he's learning how to kick alien ass. And, and what, what, uh, uh, what writer Jason Aaron does so well is that, uh, in, in conjunction with the fantastic art by um, uh, uh, Doug Mankey, uh, amazing art, is that, you know, it's funny. The, the exposition, it's not too heavy. This is a nice combination of getting into Batman's head and dialogue. It's a nice interplay between the two. And I, I don't, I, I, all the words here in, enhance my enjoyment of this story, especially how Batman is thinking. And, uh, and just his, just his interaction, and you you feel the the sense and the impending uh, th- that Batman really is risking everything, and I particularly love his his you know his his fellow prisoner here. I own I own I Ione or is it Ione or Ione? However you pronounce the name. Anyways, I think she's just awesome. I hope I hope we don't see. I hope this isn't the last we see of her. Ultimately, Batman makes a sacrifice. He's, he, he, he helps orchestrate a prison break. They all basically escape. And uh, Batman ends up – Batman is ultimately saved and he ends up on this, on this prison planet. Uh, pardon me. He ends up on another planet where once again – Batman is on another planet that is a, basically a planet where there seems to be some sort of people that are enslaved on it, <laughs> and they're being they're being hunted by these and by these wolf-like creatures. And once again, Batman is using it as a training field. It's sort of like that that classic that classic line from from the Watchmen from the Watchmen series where where Rorschach says when he's in prison. I'm not, you're not, you know, I'm not trapped in here with you. You're locked up in here with me or something to that effect. Wherever Batman goes, he owns where he is. And uh, I, I love Jason Aaron. I just like, like Jason Aaron's very aggressive approach to Batman. Determined, always preparing, always willing to learn, always willing to humiliate himself if it means it's going to make him better for the second time. Batman doesn't need to win every fight. He just needs to win the last fight. And that's just, that's, that's his attitude toward Batman. I love the way the, I just, I just, this is just a fun, good Batman comic. You don't need to read anything before. You don't need to know anything about continuity. This is, what Chip Sardaski did when he wrote Batman the Night, where Batman, Bruce Wayne was learning to be Batman. This is Batman learning to be Batman to the rest of the universe, to the rest of the galaxy. That's what I love about it. That's what makes it feel fresh and exciting and new. And so I, I, I continue to give it high praise, and we're just at the end of the second issue. What about yourself? I was a little surprised that Batman escaped from the kind of the, the slaver ship already. Like I, I sort of thought that that was the story we were going to get, right? Like Batman on the slaver ship. He was going to learn how to defeat these aliens. You know, you talked about him <laughs> making the incredible decision to fly out into space. We talked about it last issue because there's an enforcer in Gotham City that's one of these a- aliens. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, different than that. Uh, a lot of context for Ione. You mentioned it. Um, you know, she's Tamarian. We, we learn, uh, she's a very fascinating character, very well done by Jason Aaron. So I agree with you. I hope it's not the last we, we see of her, but, uh, you know, based on her escape and taking some other prisoners with her and, uh, I was like, okay, wait, so now we're getting off the slaver ship? Like, I wasn't expecting that. I thought this was going to be the story of Batman getting out to the slaver ship, learning how to defeat the aliens, you know, training with this punch bot, as he calls it. And then from there, how, how does he get back? But instead, at, by the, you know, before the, even the end of the second issue, he's already off the ship and on to a new challenge. He's crash landed. He uses a skate pod to get off the ship. Uh, crash lands on this planet that was a mining planet that's been decimated. You know, we're told it used to be very verdant and uh, people that very much uh, were peaceful and harmonious with nature and what have you. Now it's all been stripped by uh, this mining company, the very mining company that the slaver ship sells its slaves to. Um, now it's a harsh environment. There are these some sort of alien wolves on the planet that feed on the um, native uh, remaining population that's there and you know batman he's always going to you know fight for the little guy and so that's what we're going to have going forward so what this has shown me in the second issue is that the story is going to be a little bit broader in focus than i initially thought i thought it was going to be kind of a a you know one quest for batman it seems like it's going to be more him traveling around the galaxy on different quests i guess not so different from what superman does at times so that's pretty interesting and i'll give Jason Aaron, a lot of credit for going, uh, you know what? I want to write a cosmic. I'm going to go over to DC, you know, and play with some DC characters the first time. I'm going to write a cosmic story. Somebody out there, you know, meeting these different alien races and, and up to the challenge. Yeah. So who, who am I going to pick? Am I going to pick Superman? Am I going to pick one of the Green Lanterns? Um, I mean, there's any number of people that, you know, you could choose. Superboy um, could even do something with somebody who you might not expect like a cyborg or firestorm, something like that. No, I'm going to pick somebody who doesn't even have superpowers. I'm going to pick Batman and I'm going to make it make sense. Uh, you know, that's good writing. So whether it will continue to make sense, uh, we'll have to wait and see so far. He's knocking it out of the park. He does also have the advantage of no matter what he does. Uh, and you know, knock on wood here. I don't think he'll do anything as ludicrous as Batman jumping from the moon. We're jumping from a satellite <laughs> orbiting the moon. So he's got that going for him. Uh, it can't be that bad as long as he doesn't do that. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. The Doug Monkey art. Uh, I mean, he's a fan favorite for a reason. His art is very detailed, very bombastic, and it really works uh, for the series. And the David Baron colors are fantastic as well. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Catwoman issue number 60, Nine Lives Part 2, written by Tinny Howard. Stefano Raphael is the artist, Veronica Gandini on colors, Lucas Gattoni on letters. I continue to really enjoy this story, but I also continue to have the same kind of nitpicks. Um, and that's that at times it feels a little bit choppy. Again, I'm going to chalk it up to Tinny Howard not having quite enough space to tell the story she wants to tell. So Catwoman, we know that she's got these extra lives, uh, and so she's taken it upon herself to undertake these missions that she doesn't think that she'll necessarily survive, but it's okay because she has these extra lives. So she's going after this, um, this Bacchus um, little idol that in and of itself gives power to whoever possesses it, but it requires blood. It requires death uh, requires whoever owns it 
uh, or possesses it to keep killing people so that they'll continue to have power. She wants the thing destroyed. Um, and so she goes after the, the flamingo who is an old nemesis of hers, uh, in order to uh, destroy it. She's sort of set up, uh, and when she's ambushed, uh, while she's, we, we're not sure. We think she's dead. We're told she's dead. Turns out she was just unconscious and not dead. But during that time, she has a little bit of a dream and sees a, a, a clown who looks sort of like the Joker, um, but maybe it's not the Joker. Intimated that it's somebody else, maybe the person pulling the strings that gave her the extra lives. We're not really sure. But it happens after she gets poisoned, like a needle in the neck, and then this happens, and we're like, wait, so did she get drugged, and this is the next day? Like, it's not, it's not clear. And then once we get done with that page where she's talking to this clown, she's in a room where she's, like, chained up. Okay, it turns out that it took me a minute to figure it out. I'm like, oh, wait, wait. So that was like a vision or a dream she had yeah. while she was that was my dead slash unconscious. Yeah. 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 That, that's clearly what it is. But my, my point being, it, like I had, it pulled me out of the story that I had to stop and figure that out. Yeah. So that's where I, that's where I get, you know, when I mentioned, yeah, sometimes it's choppy like that. And again, I, I think it's because there's just not quite enough room. <laughs> there's just not quite enough economy of story from Tinny Howard. Again, it's a minor nitpick. Overall, I enjoyed this. Uh, come to find out, you know, Catwoman lost two lives on the last issue when she thought she only lost one. In this one, she thinks she loses one. Turns out she didn't lose any. She actually made it through this mission without losing any lives. So I liked that. Um, she goes, oh, I'm one up again. Lucky, lucky cat. I, I like that. There is a, an element of Catwoman um, that's not so different from Black Cat over at Marvel where luck is a factor. And so I like that that's thrown in here. Um, I also thought the art was, uh, was pretty solid. Um, so overall, you know, I think the, the Tinny Howard run on Catwoman, a lot of people, I think it gets a bad rap. Like I think people are unnecessarily or overly harsh on it. I'm not saying it's like the best version of Catwoman ever, but I, I, I feel like a lot of them are just bashing on it because they tried it early on. It was a little choppy. Um, they're just hating on it now to hate on it. And they're not really giving it a, a fair shake uh, because I think overall, especially the Stefano Raphael line work and the Veronica Gandini colors in this issue in particular are really, really strong. Um, there's a fantastic uh, main cover from David Nakayama. So um, overall, I, I, I really enjoyed this issue. What'd you think? I, uh, I agree with your one constructive criticism that it, it is a little bit, uh, some of the tr scene transitions are a little jarring. Like I, I, it took me a while to figure out that was a dream sequence when she saw the jester with the cat eyes. And I, I think that what's – see, the, the concept here is it's kind of cool, but the way it comes across and the way that, that Teeny Howard is pacing this story, it's not near as effective as it could be. The idea that – that the idea that the media, that the asteroid or that media that came down, that bestowed immortality upon Vandal Savage, that, that, that the impact, the effect that that would have on Catwoman, that it literally gave her nine lives. It's a little bit tropey, but okay, well, it's kind of cool. All right, well, what's the secret? Like, wh why would it give her nine lives? But more particular, one of the things that, uh, and this might just be me as a reader, but one of the things that's missing for me is I don't understand why What's the obsession that Selena has? First of all, she concludes that she has nine lives. Okay. She loses two. Why the rush? 
Why all of a sudden does she feel a rush to run out and risk her life eight times? So she has one left. There, there, apparently there's, has she really had eight? I mean, how many, like, I just thought it was kind of funny that all of it, oh, there's, she actually has like eight suicide missions, potential suicide missions. She's always wanted to go on. Thank God she happens to have nine lives. So she's going to go on eight suicide missions to, uh, because there's things that she's always wanted to do, but she never had the courage or the bravery to do, to, do before because she, she, she was fearful she could die. That has an element of cowardice to it. That doesn't sound like Selena Kyle to me. If, if you were to tell Selena Kyle, look, Selena, there's a big score here. It's called the Idol of Bacchus. And, uh, and, uh, but you don't want to go on. And this mission's too tough for you. You could get killed. Would, would Selena Kyle say, oh, I could get killed. I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm not immortal. I mean, to me, it's like I can't think of any – if Selena really wanted to, to do something and felt so passionate about it, she would, she would risk her life anyway, I think. Again, it's a minor nitpick. Uh, I'm so compelled to play script doctor here. It would have made more sense to me if, if she had nine lives and she was forced to use up the lives in a particular time period. You've got, you've got six months to use up eight lives and for every life you don't use up, if you don't use up your nine lives, somebody you love will die. Like, so you have to use up the nine lives. So she has to go on a suicide mission and she can't plan. And the planning is a little haphazard. And I, th I think it would have more gravitas that way, more of a haphazard nature. Because this entire, these stories so far feel haphazard. They feel that Selena's making mistakes, that she's doing things she wouldn't normally do. She's, she's surprisingly, she's a little bit more incompetent than, uh, uh, not, not quite on her game. I mean, she's taken on the flamingo for God's sakes. Is this really what S Selena has in the mind? She wants to... You know, even the first story, she's taken on some Mexican thief and now it's the pink flamingo. I mean, this is almost kind of insulting to the character. Again, maybe I'm being a little harsh, but I, uh, you know, I will admit, you know, beside the, it's a beautiful cover, a pink cover with the little purple outfit of Catwoman. Cover looks fantastic, but I just, uh, I'm not really feeling the gravitas of this because if, if, if this is Catwoman, she's like the, in my view, she prepares like Batman. She's the best thief in the world and she wants to go on. She's giving herself suicide missions and these missions seem so small and pathetic and they, they, they don't, they don't have the gravitas that I think this character deserves. And, but again, I love the concept. But what that Teeny Howard has in mind here, it just feels like that. But the the way it's playing out, it just feels so small to me. Big concept, small stories, how it feels. But you know, may, maybe they'll get better as the, as her suicide missions that she's given herself uh, evolve. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah. So Mexican assassin, not a Mexican thief. So, and <laughs> and you're 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 falling victim to the same the same thing you fell victim to in in Gotham War. <laughs> um, and it's totally understandable here, more more so understandable here than Gotham War. We're told that that assassin was the most dangerous assassin in the world now, and so that's why it was so dangerous. Now, the fact that she's never shown up in the DC universe or been mentioned previously makes it like, well, how could this be the most dangerous assassin in the DC universe when I mean, we never heard of her before? But everybody's got to show up for the first time at some point. Yeah. Um, and then the same same thing here, you know, this idol of Bacchus creates an environment that's, you know, very, very dangerous. Um, so, uh, the, you know, the missions are what the missions are. And they, to me, they feel like they're pretty dangerous. But at the same time, again, this is a new concept, right? And it is the Flamingo who you can never really take seriously. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. And the other thing that doesn't help 
sell this particular mission as very dangerous is didn't it feel awfully convenient? Like she didn't have that much trouble taking the statue and then the statue gets, you know, hit by a giant 18 wheeler and destroyed. And okay. It's like, it seemed, it seemed so easy. How was this so, so dangerous? Um, So I, I, yeah, I get, I get what you're saying. Um, But at the same time, like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta go by what I'm being told. These are dangerous missions, uh, even though <laughs> you don't feel like it. I get you 100%. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Jay Garrick, The Flash, number three, from writer Jeremy Adams. Diego Orlatuga is the artist. Luis Guerrero on colors. Steve Wands on letters. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one? Um, just bringing it up here. Okay. I've... Um... This is I, I'm feeling fairly meh about this series, to be honest. I'm not. Uh, it's not really. Uh, it's not really resonating with me as much as I hoped that it would. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I am intrigued. I will give credit to Jeremy Adams. What he's doing, and I think it is actually working, is, uh, and it's even stated in the story itself. The as the yeah. Uh, Judy Garrick, uh, I guess, boom, she, she seems to be traveling back in the past. So it's weird. She, she's traveling back in the past to, to have adventures with her dad in, in the 1940s and also having adventures with him in the present. That appears to be what she's doing. And that's kind of an interesting thing. So she's getting the best of both worlds. She can interact with her younger version of her dad that she missed out on all those adventures but she's going back in the time, going back in time and having adventures with him and then also having adventures with him in the present. And meanwhile, there's this villain who we don't know who this villain is, who, but he has the ability to control the elements. And uh, he's, the central, he's the central villain who ultimately at the end is, is revealed to be this uh, – ends up – he's revealed to be a Professor Hughes, the man responsible for Jake Derrick becoming the Flash. So that's interesting. I also really like that J- Jeremy Adams is introducing some of the characters he, he introduced us to in his Flash run, particularly Mr. Terrific's son and, uh, who, uh, and, and Fair Play. So we've got, I forget uh, what the hell is, is uh, it's uh, Fair Play and Quiz Kid. So they show up. And so we get uh, Jeremy Adams is playing, the, playing with these these action figures <laughs> in his sandbox, the way almost like continuing, like he used to play with them when he was writing Wally West flash. And that's what I think us, I think most of us will really enjoy is that that type of storytelling that we, we missed in flash. We're getting it here with Jay Garrick, uh, the flash and, and, and we're getting the best of both worlds because I, I I sort of like the fact that we're you know Boom is seems to be going back and forth, so we're getting the past, we're getting 1940s Jay Garrick, so we're getting kind of a quasi Justice Society adventure, and we're getting a present day Justice Society with the, with the next legacy era of of kids, and so we're getting a combination of family fun and speedsters uh, all wrapped up in in this comic, and so it's. It's not. It's not bad. It's not bad. I don't. Maybe I don't know really what I'm. Ex, what what I was expecting, but I'm getting exactly 
what what was in Wally West Flash. I'm just I'm a little I find it really interesting what's going to happen at some point. Boom can't just continue to travel back and you know her traveling back in the past all the time or seems to be suggested she was doing that. That seems a little bit odd to me, and yet she seems to be able to do that, and she's doing that. At some point, that, that you know, that seems like you're, you're cheating a bit, but yet that, that seems to be an interesting paradox to me. I'm not sure how Adams is going gonna, is gonna to reconcile that, because what was the point of being lost in time if all your memories are returning and you can just travel in the past? I mean, if she can travel into the past, why doesn't Boop just travel in the past and stay in the past? Like, I... I don't know what's so. Why not do that? I why, so why not travel to the past, travel to the past, and prevent yourself from being kidnapped and gone for fifty yeah. years? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I mean, I, yeah. I, it's an open question. Yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe I missed a plot point here, but it just seems a little bit uh, in, intriguing to me. Why would I mean if you had like if you had a choice, would you rather try? Would you rather live in a future when you when your parent when you're if you're sixteen? Would you rather live in a future where your parents are ninety years old or live in live in the past where they're like 35 and 40 come on like it just seems a little bit odd to me so i find it a sort of a, it's sort of an, uh, an odd situation for boom to be in and yet it doesn't seem to be directly addressed in the story itself so um I, maybe maybe i'm just overthinking it but uh anyways, no but, uh, it's it's a legitimate question it's a problem that's inherent in in time travel uh so i I won't, I won't get into it. Um, this felt very much like a transitional issue for me. I feel like not that much happened. The D- Diego Orlatuga art is fantastic. We did get the reveal of who Dr. Dr. Alchemy is, how that's all going to play out. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, I do wish the series focused a little bit more on just on the Flash family, just on Jay Garrick and um, his wife and his daughter. But I don't hate seeing the rest of the Justice Society, especially like seeing Mr. Terrific and, you know, his son and Quiz Kid. That makes sense uh, that we'd see him here. Those characters uh, intrigue me as well. Um, it makes sense that Stargirl and, and Judy Garrick would uh, would befriend each other. So, you know, everything makes sense. But, yeah, I feel like we didn't get a lot of forward momentum in this story. Um, and I, I don't know where sort of this little corner of the DC universe goes like we know justice society's ending, you know, this spun out of a lot of the, the uh, seeds that Jeff Johns planted in his flashpoint beyond that, you know, Jeremy yeah. wrote with him along with, uh, with Tim Sheridan. Um, but I don't know with Jeff Johns, not at DC anymore. What, what happens to these characters? I, I don't know. Yeah. I guess we'll see. It, it it runs a risk of doing something I was talking about earlier, right? Not not mattering if this corner of the DCU is just going to be shuffled off, forgotten, mothballed, or e- even worse than that, uh, somebody else come in and do something completely different and, and throw all this out. I I don't know. I I wish DC would turn around and say, okay, you know, Jeff's moving on. He wants to focus on his Ghost Machine imprint over at Image or what have you. Hey, Jeremy. Why don't you write Justice Society or why don't you, you know, yeah. take over the controls of this, you know, little corner of what, what Jeff has built? Because these, these are beloved characters, man. That Justice Society run that Jeff Johns does, people still reference it all the time. You could bring a Hawkman or Hawk Girl series in under this kind of same corner as well. I know everything doesn't line up completely 
hundred percent. I mean, we've talked a lot about how the power girl that's in this corner of DC doesn't match the power girl that's over in Leah Williams series at all. Um, but you know, it's, it, that's minor in my mind. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Nightwing number one Oh nine written by Tom Taylor. Stephen Byrne is the artist. Adriana Lucas on colors, Wes Abbott on letters. Stephen Byrne has been drawing this entire sort of pirate arc that uh, Nightwing has been on, which I guess gave Bruno Redondo a chance to do that action comics issue. Uh, so speaking of choppy, you know, we saw at the end of last issue, uh, B blood was uh, Beatrice blood was stabbed by her stepbrother, I guess, for lack of a better term and left for dead. Nightwing jumps into the water, you know, jumps off a cliff, goes after her, saves her, but we don't actually get to see that. He just dives in and uh, then we get a flashback of him, learning how to um, treat wounds from Alfred by stitching up a pig in the Batcave back in the day. And then the next scene we get in present day, B's in a bed in a room somewhere. <laughs> so a uh, little bit choppy. And then you go to the next page, and now they're flying in a seaplane, uh, meeting up with the hold. And then her stepbrother shows up. Nightwing defeats the, him, and... He gets the contents of the box that was in the hold that started this whole adventure off in the first place. And it's a CD-ROM that has um, security footage of Tony Zuko sabotaging the trapeze that uh, his parents were on the night that uh, they died. So if that sounds like a very simple story that jumped from A to B to C to D, that's 100% what it was, (laughs) you know. A lot of times people complain about Tom Taylor's stories not doing anything, not going anywhere. The plot doesn't advance. This is sort of the opposite of that. The It advances very quickly, uh, almost at a choppy pace. It's fine. I didn't mind it. Uh, I was ready to move on from you know uh, Nightwing as a pirate anyway. So curious to see what's going to happen next. I know it's supposed to – this getting the security footage and proof that Tony Zuko killed his parents is – supposed to really like be impactful and, and fired Dick Grayson up or whatever. But regardless of whether he had proof or not, he, he knew he already knew. So that feels a little forced to me for him. Oh, now, now he's got footage. Now he's got irrefutable proof. Oh, so now he's going to like, no, like he's going to go after Tony Zuko. If he's going to go after Tony Zuko. Uh, it, that never made sense to me. Um, why he would let Zuko ever be out of prison. Um, but Story reasons, I guess. Got to have a uh, Batman or uh, Dick Grayson Nightwing fired up about something. So the, the art by Stephen Burns great. I don't enjoy it as much as the Bruno Redondo art. Um, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see where this goes from here uh, as far as the Tony Zuko stuff. Because like I said, it, it, it felt a little forced. But I definitely enjoyed seeing B as uh, this pirate queen. That was uh, probably my favorite thing about this this little arc. So what are your thoughts on it, Rocky? Well, the, this story is very, very smooth. The one thing about Tom Taylor's stories, they, they are smooth. There's, the transitions are very smooth, and uh, he, often he is gifted. Uh, he's following in Tom King's footstep. Tom, Tom Taylor is often gifted with very talented artists, and Stephen Bernier is no exception, or whether it's him or Redondo. And, but it's just, you know, there is a feeling sometimes, and maybe it's just that I'm spoiled, but there's a feeling that not much happens. Uh, who cares if, that he finds a tape that Zuko... Uh, it shows Zuko, you know, or sabotaging the, the trapeze that killed his parents. Why do you know that? I mean, 
Who cares? I mean, so so he so he finds Zuko and puts him in prison. This is boring. I mean, that's just you know what I mean. Like we already we've already we kind of know that. I mean, if we know Joe Chill killed, uh, you know, was the murder of Bruce Wayne's parents. Well, it, how exciting would a story be if Batman, or, you know, took out Joe Chill? He's just a, he's just the you know, <laughs> like okay, man, uh, all that for for that. But having said that. What I liked about this issue, and maybe this is why this plays into why Taylor's uh, stories maybe do seem to resonate with so many fans, including myself at the end, because I complain about the lack of plot progression. On the other hand, there's something absolutely beautiful about this story. Uh, it's it's very easy to read. We get a really good origin of, for Captain Blood, the origin for Bloodhaven. Uh, you know, uh, Beatrice here, she's just, she's, she's beautiful. I mean, she's a beautiful pirate queen <laughs> i mean and uh bruce way or uh, pardon me uh, dick grayson saving her flashback to him alfred i mean that was kind of a useless flashback but you understand that he's that's the training he got this is really flushing out for a brand new audience if you want to understand dick grayson to a new generation of readers boy oh boy you, you couldn't get better than nightwing because tom taylor doesn't rush the narratives he pretty much spoon feeds the reader but with with a very straightforward, easy to follow story, and gifted with absolutely beautiful art, and so you know, there's that. Uh, again, as a long time reader, I do want a little bit more substance, and I'm just not getting it with Nightwing, and just started getting it with Titans, and so I don't know. I think there'll always be that interplay with 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 Taylor, where I like when he when he has maybe his. Uh, when he doesn't have to worry about continuity, he tends to pack more substance in into deceased and and you know Dark Knights of Steel and what have you, uh, as opposed to his more mainstream titles here. But overall, it's not bad. It's just like you said, not a, not a heck of a lot happens. It's so interesting that you think it's smooth and I'm saying it's choppy. It's uh, yeah. I, I I mean, I I agree with you. It's that typically he's good at transitions and certainly from panel to panel is very, uh, very smooth. But yeah, th- this one in particular, and it doesn't happen often, but this one in particular had those, it felt like the story had those jumps. Uh, again, he, you know, dives in after her and then we see her in bed. It's like, so I, I guess maybe he didn't have a good idea. It was just him. Okay. I'm going to swim down. I'm going to pick her up. I'm going to take her to shore. He didn't bother to show that. I don't know. Whatever. Well, I, I just thought what I what I meant by smooth is that it was very, very, very easy to figure out what happened because the reason uh, why they made those jumps is that it was obvious. Well, he rescued her. Well, he needs a med. Well, yeah. so they, you know, thank God at least we never saw that because it's so obvious what he did. But that's another example of the lack of anything actually exciting or different happening. So it was yeah. just, you know what I mean? Like it's so yeah, predictable yeah. that he's not even bothering with the scenes anymore. I mean, it's that's where I'm getting yeah, a little bit frustrated. Yeah. He could have. He she could have been in the clutches of a giant crab underwater. Yeah. And he could have had to fight the crab. You know that's yeah. exciting. But yeah, didn't want to. It, it just felt like okay. It's time. It was time to end the pirate storyline. So I'm going to end it in one issue, and I'm going to have to have a few a few jumps in time to get that done. So yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Titans Beast World Tour Central City Number One. Multiple stories in here. Kind of the the. The spine story, the story keeps coming back to, is written by Cy Spurrier with art by Scott Koblish, uh, colored by Hi-Fi, letters by Hassan Atman Elhow, and stars Barry Allen and uh, and Irie West. They're trying to get all the speedsters together, speedsters together to stop 
what's going on in Central City with all the spores infecting people. Uh, we, one of the other kind of interludes, if you will, that stars Wallace West is written by Jarrett Williams, art by George Kamambatis, letter, uh, colors by Matt Herms, and letters by Hassan Osman Elhal. That's the same writer that's writing the um, the Speed Force series right now, so probably not a surprise that we see Roundhouse uh, show up to team up with Wallace there and even makes reference to the Speed Force um, series. Then we jump back to the the main spine story, like I said, with Cy Spurrier, and then we get um, a series with, or, or a, an interlude with Jay and Maxine Baker that's written by Alex Pacnadel with art by Serge Acuna, colors by Matt Herms, letters by Hassan Atman Elha. This is my favorite of the stories by far because it's basically – uh, Maxine and Jay on a on a date on a first date. It's clear they like each other, but they're both really nervous uh, trying to have this date when uh, you know basically it gets interrupted because of what's going on with Beast World, and we get to see Jay struggling with his powers, and um, it's pretty interesting what happens there. And then we go back to uh, the main series again, um, just you know very briefly with the Flash family trying to figure out how they're going to stop Godspeed, who's been turned into a wasp. Uh, been a long time since we've seen Godspeed, who's a, uh, a Joshua Williamson uh, creation when Williamson was writing The Flash. And then we see Circuit Breaker show up, who's a character I think has only shown up once before in the pages of The Flash. Uh, she teams up with, uh, or they, I think they're non-binary. Um, yeah. They team up with Pied Piper, and that's in a story by A.L. Kaplan, who handles everything, the um, the line art, the story, the colors, everything but the lettering, which is Hassan Atzman Elhau. That one was a little rough, was a little hard to uh, to follow and uh, a little choppy with the dialogue and what have you. And then we get back to the uh, kind of the spine story, as I said, where Maxine Baker convinces all the members of the Flash family to take the spores into them and, um, and basically they all become insects because then they have sort of a hive mind with Barry Allen sort of as the queen bee, for lack of a better term, where they can all work together instinctively to save the people of, uh, of Central City and the stories to be continued in Titan's Beast World. Uh, and if that sounds completely ludicrous to you, that they would purposely <laughs> get infected by the spores and all turn into – Insects, bees, wasps, whatever. Uh, I hundred percent agree with you. There's references to Cy Spurrier's uh, run on the Flash, which has been, I'm sorry, not good. It's been a, an absolute mess so far. Um, if you pick this up because you are enjoying Titans Beast World and you're not reading Flash, uh, then you'll know exactly what the Flash series is like. And if you pick this up and you really like the chaotic nature of it, then I would suggest you go and pick up Size Spurrier's Flash. But if you don't like the chaotic nature of this uh, or the chaotic nature of Size Spurrier's Flash, then don't don't read this because it was a bit of a chore to get through. Um, I thought the art was okay in places. I've definitely seen Scott Koblish do better. Um, but I feel like he was <laughs> – he was – he was given a tough assignment writing the story and, and trying to make it make sense, especially with them transitioning into insects and what have you. Um, and a lot of these art styles are, are they, they don't mesh well together. Um, so that's another challenge as well. Um, 
I just, I mean, these anthologies, we've talked a lot about them uh, in recent episodes um, as in terms of events and how we wish DC wouldn't run their events like this. We don't get to make that call. Uh, but as bad as most of the anthologies, uh, or I won't say bad, but as, as average as most of the anthologies have been, th- this is one of the worst ones that I've read. I, I you know, I'm trying to stay positive, but I don't want you guys to go out there and pick this up thinking, Oh my God, so good. Um, <laughs> but that, now that being said, I, I did really enjoy the J Maxine first date story that stood at head and shoulders above the rest of this. Um, so, you know, credit where credit's due to Alex Packnadel. Uh, that was a hundred percent because of the, um, the interaction, like the, the, it felt very uh, real. If these kids felt nervous, they felt very much like, you know, preteens on a first date. So uh, yeah, that, that one was really good. The rest of them. eh. So I don't know, maybe you had a different experience, Rocky. Did you, did you enjoy this? Uh, well, I, I do think that uh, I enjoyed it. I, I would say I just in guessing from the way you sounded there, I did enjoy it more than you did. I, I do think that of, of, of all the crossovers, uh, Oh, of I guess anthology issues coming out of Beast World. This is my this is the best one so far in my opinion. Only and a lot of it has to do with I I really like the uh, Jay and Maxine going on a date. I I do note that them being on a date is really odd. They've clearly been aged up. I thought they were like I thought they were eight or nine years old, maybe ten years old. In fact, I thought Jay was was younger. Uh, so for them suddenly to be old enough to be dating each other. I think they. I always saw them as being much younger than that, but that's a minor nitpick. Obviously, DC wants all there. They want them all to be teenagers, so they're aging them up artificially, despite the fact that I don't think it really makes a lot of sense in terms of the strict continuity-wise, but that's all well and good. I, I like – it felt like Jeremy Adams wrote parts of this issue uh, with between uh, Jay and Maxine on that date and, uh, of course, Irie being – you know, Maxine pretending to have the stomach flu because she doesn't want to upset Max and tell Irie that she has a crush on her brother. Of course, it's the worst-kept secret. Everybody knows that. I like the fact that uh, – you know, it's interesting that you were so hard on the plot point that Maxine Baker, who was Animal Girl – I mean her father's Animal Man – if 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 – Beast Boy can possess a giant whale and take on a giant star, uh, a, a giant starfish, and, and and lead all these spores. I would think that Maxine Baker, as Animal Girl, could probably handle just controlling, uh, maybe controlling just the Flash family with her animal-like powers and her connection to the Red or whatever. So I, so I actually let that fly a little bit. If I'm going to cut Beast Boy some flack, I thought I'd cut that to Maxine. I will say that I did cringe. I didn't still, nonetheless, despite my defending that plot point, it did make me cringe a little bit. Uh, but I do think that uh, with Matt, it, it maybe is telling, a, hinting at a future plot point. Maybe with her father, Animal Man, coming back into the fray at some point. And because uh, Animal Man, I got the impression, kind of went a little bit insane in the first issue of, of Beast World. Animal Man, you got the impression he was so overwhelmed by a million animals suddenly being on the earth. He, maybe he's overwhelmed. Uh, does, does his daughter, Maxine Baker, why wasn't she overwhelmed? She's, but, you know, maybe she's, you know, I'm surprised that she wasn't incapacitated too. But in any event, I thought it was interesting. Uh, Godspeed becoming a murder, a murder, a murder hornet. 
uh, was kind of funny. Uh, impulse turning, changing into a rat and having Circuit Breaker and uh, Pied Piper trying to take on Impulse and incapacitate him. There were some there were some interesting interactions here and kind of and and I thought I thought there was fun to be had here. I, I actually I there was a fun element here that. R- r- actually reminded me a little bit of, uh, of Jeremy Adams' uh, flash run, to, to be honest. So I actually didn't mind it. So if you're, a, if you're a fan of the Flash family and the Flash set of characters, I actually think this is uh, one of the better ones, in, in my opinion. It's, it's still not necessary. You absolutely don't need to pick it up. But if, if you're reading Beast World and you're wondering why the Flash family looks like a bunch of bumblebees, <laughs> this issue will tell you why. <laughs> so... It's not bad. Yeah, you know what I realized? We forgot to talk about the backup from from Nightwing, uh, where apparently in Gotham City there's fewer um, – there's a lot fewer uh, people that are infected with the spores. And come to find out it's because some characters – a new character created by Tom Taylor is uh, – she's green, and he showed her off on Twitter, and people are like, oh, who's this? Um, she's capturing all the people – uh, and imprisoning them in cages underneath the Gotham City Zoo. Damien goes there. Um, he discovers this, gets attacked. She forces him to eat a spore. Um, it seems like she's forcing these people infected with spores to fight against each other, maybe charging a mission or something, some kind of gladiator battles or what have you. He turns into a cat. So Damien is a cat uh, in uh, – yeah, there it is. there she is. In uh, yeah. Beast Wars, so speculator alert: new character. We don't even know her name yet, um, but apparently, uh, she's not a nice person, according to Tom Taylor. Um, so I don't really have much else to add. Thought the Sami Basri art was fine. I, you know, I don't. I'm not a Damien fan, so whatever. Kind of interesting that he turns into a little kitty cat, though. Uh, not exactly ferocious. So anyway. Uh, anything you want to add about the backup before we? Uh, yeah, it makes me wonder if that backup. You got to wonder if that if that female character has any relationship to uh, Beast Boy. Uh, is yeah, she she kind of yeah. looks. She's got she's got like what looks to be like a lizard, a tattoo of a lizard or a salamander on on one leg and some other creature on uh, on the other. So she's she looks like she's got animal symbols tattooed all over her green skin. So interesting. Very interesting. So I don't know what her name is, but yeah, speculator alert. That's a that's a good. I'm glad you were. I, I completely forgot. I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> well, we were because we were talking about Beast World. It reminded me. Oh, by the way, Damien is a kitty cat. Uh, all right, on to the last book. We're going to talk about in detail. Uh, maybe the best book of the week: Wonder Woman number four. Tom King is the writer. Daniel Semper on art. Tamei Mori on colors. Clayton Cal on letters. Uh, give us your thoughts on this one, Rocky. I, I have mixed feelings. Well, uh, uh, <laughs> oh man, I, um, look, Tom, Tom King, you know, it's, it's quite apparent that there's a, uh, I, I almost feel like compelled to, uh, uh, to, to talk about some of what I thought were laughable reactions by a certain segment of the comic collecting community to Wonder Woman number three who uh, apparently lost their minds because of the way they, they felt that the military was being, uh, you know, because of how it dealt with the uh, suicide of a, of a member of the military, which was obviously caused by the bad guy in the story and, and just the just insane overreaction to it. 
but you know, haters are going to hate uh, Tom King no matter what he scripts. Uh, and I can already see the uh, the criticism of this one. Uh, there is a certain segment that will criticize Tom King for killing kids, and uh, you know, uh, you know, whether it's the Joker, and you know, God forbid, there's violence in a comic book, as if some, somehow that's new. But in in this one here, I'm sure they'll find a way to criticize it because uh, this is the exact opposite of a child dying, but it's a dying child, so they'll they'll probably find some way to criticize that. Uh, look, th- this is a feel good comic book. Uh, this is th- th- this is meant to portray. This is meant to portray that even in the midst of battle, even in the, the midst of an entire country that's slowly being manipulated by the sovereign to be against Wonder Woman in the Amazons, Wonder Woman finds time to keep a promise and in this case, uh, go to the bed of a, of a dying boy named Jack. Now, after everything I just said, is, there, is it a little bit tropey here? Yeah. Is it? A, can, can, it, it is. I, I will. It, it, I have to acknowledge that. At the same time, this was this was really heartfelt, and there were moments in here in this story where, uh, frankly, I choked up a bit. I, I did. I it, it did. Uh, I, I felt it. I thought it was. I thought young Jack here. Uh, you know, he's so excited to see Wonder Woman as 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 the sovereign is sort of narrating the series, and as it's established that the sovereign is manipulating the president. And as the sovereign has apparently manipulated all the presidents since back to the founding fathers, Tom King is really playing it heavy here that the sovereign is super powerful and has been manipulating presidents all the way back. I think Tom King is overplaying the power of the sovereign. I think he's I think it's I think he's too heavy handed on the on the villain. And I think he's too heavy handed on the misogyny. Uh, in this story, he doesn't need to be as heavy handed as he is to make this work. Um, but that's the way he's playing it. And uh, uh, even Amanda Waller shows up and Amanda Waller is uh, even Amanda Waller, you know, she speaks in a language or she's speaking in code words. And there, there's some Tom King eccentricity here, you know, instead of Amanda Waller calling, uh, referencing Giganta, Maxwell Lord, Dr. Psycho, Hercules, Silver Banshee, and Angleman. She, she, he has Amanda Waller refer to the big one, the charmer, the doctor, the half-god, the bird, and the triangle idiot. Why? Like, Amanda Waller would probably, when speaking to, uh, you know, in, in speaking to Sarge Steele, I don't think she'd necessarily talk in that sort of coded language. Uh, although... Uh, so I, I get a sense of the pretentiousness of Tom King. So while I started off talking, maybe criticizing those who don't see, appreciate what Tom King does, here I am criticizing Tom King as I'm getting into this story. He does tend to give a lot of fodder to his detractors at times, and I think unnecessarily so. And that's on Tom King because he doesn't need to be as heavy-handed as, 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 he, as he often will script his stories. There's, there's a good story here. There's a good story here of America being manipulated by a bad guy to have a who has an agenda against the Amazons. But there's there's a lot there is a lot of always behind the scenes. There's always a little bit more that seems to play into it that seems to ruffle some feathers. But I think there is a story here to be had. I I felt the the emotions of I, I love Jack's conversation with Wonder Woman, young young Jack. And I, I love the fact that, uh, you know, um, Wonder Woman even says, just a minute, I got to kiss my daughter goodnight. Um, uh, the fact that she's, you know, she takes Jack to, it, it, in, in the midst of all this chaos going on in Wonder Woman's life, she, she decides to take 
uh, this young boy, Jack, who's dying of cancer to Paradise Island, even though men aren't supposed to be on Paradise Island. You know, so that's the central conceit. You know, men aren't supposed to be on Paradise Island. And yet she's going to take this dying boy to Paradise Island. And then she she speaks to the Amazons in a way that, well, you know, you know, the Amazons have to remind Wonder Woman that you can't have men on Paradise Island. And she says, well, laws are forged by women trying to escape barbarity. She's suggesting, of course, that, you know, it's an outdated law. It's foolish. You know, clearly we can read between the lines. This is a harmless child. You, you, you can infer why I'm here, you know, kind of stop being so stuck up. And besides which, if you don't let me take this dying child under this island, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to humiliate you and beat you all up. It's a little bit of hypocrisy there, but it underscores sort of the tension of, of the hypocrisy of the Amazons, the hypocrisy of Themyscira. Uh, and it, it sort of underscores why the world and why the U.S. is United States and why, why it's so easy for the sovereign to get people to to think the worst of the Amazons because they are kind of backward in some of their thinking. Some of their laws don't make a hell of a lot of sense. And so, but at the same time, Wonder Woman chooses love. She chooses kindness. She chooses compassion. She embraces kindness. And even in the midst of her, arguably one of her most darker adventures where the world is uh, potentially even heroes are going to be against her. She decides to help this dying child to fulfill this dying child's wish to see Paradise Island, and and uh, in the midst of all of it, she th- there's some beautiful language here. There's some beautiful language that Tom King is is really good at. Uh, unfortunately, what often happens is because of of all the other stuff and all the other subjects that range from the political to the militaristic to issues with the sovereign and everything else. I think a lot of the more heartfelt moments will frankly be lost by people that are too pissed off on other elements. I, I personally, I just look at this as one woman choosing compassion. And the, the message here is that even in the midst of, of all the chaos, Wonder Woman is going to fulfill this young boy's wish and she finds time to do it. She finds time to love. And, um, at one point, the boy even talks about, you know, he, he, you know, he feels different. He feels he, he wonders if why he got sick was because he feels different. Is it because why does he why is his favorite hero Wonder Woman and not Batman and Superman, Superman like all the other boys? Why doesn't he like baseball? Why doesn't he like things like other boys do? There's an implication here, perhaps an inference that maybe he's different. Maybe he'd grow up to be LGBTQ. Maybe he'd grow up feeling different. And, and the message here is that, you know, it's all about love. Whoever you are, be free to be who you want to be. It is a beautiful message in the midst of this story that in the midst of this story that causes controversy and ruffles more than a few feathers, there is a beautiful part here that exemplifies Wonder Woman in all her glory that even in the midst of this woman who comes from an island of 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 women who have their own set of laws that are ruffling the feathers of 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 the United States of America, she shall she still will find time to 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 you know to to help a young boy and to fulfill his his dream of of meeting her and, and going to Paradise Island and so I enjoyed this uh, did we did the story progress very much no was this kind of tropey in a sense yes was the art fantastic absolutely there's a beautiful scene where Wonder Woman tells the young boy to open his eyes he's in an invisible jet. And as he looks down, you don't see the jet. And even as the as the reader, it looks absolutely fantastic, thanks to the Michael Janine art. It really works well. 
There's a scene with uh, Steve Trevor uh, standing up for Wonder Woman and being, you know, his fellow fellow Marines or military men. You know, he, he gets into a fight with them because they're everyone's being manipulated against the Amazons. So uh, I got mixed feelings about this issue. I, I really love the, the personal element of it, but at the same time, I Tom King does frustrate me because he he just unnecessarily doubles down. <laughs> he. He just he he does feel sometimes that he's poking the bear unnecessarily uh, at a time in our culture where you, you don't need to poke the bear so much to get your point across. But that's kind of what he's. I feel that he's doing. So I get frustrated because I've been enjoying this story. It's still better than the Clunrads run by far. But I, I do have mixed feelings about it. Uh, my my mixed feelings are appease somewhat because I really do like the backup with uh, the younger, with the younger tail, with, with mercy, with, with the, with the black mercy and uh, John, John, John Kent and a young, a young Trinity and, and, and John Kent and uh, Damian Wayne. But before I, we talk about the backup, what did you think about the main story? Yeah. Um, so it's funny. You said, yeah, she, you know, it's not in bed with a young boy. She she goes to his bedside. Let's make that clear. Sorry. Let's not give, let's not <laughs> give anybody any more fodder. Uh, <laughs> I, I sort of, I, yeah, I do. I do. Agree, I do agree to some extent. Like I want Tom to be able to tell the story that he wants to tell. But yeah, it does seem sometimes like he's, uh, you know, purposely going a little o- overboard. I, like for me, like the biggest thing, and, and and you know, for any story anybody tells. And I hope you guys all listen to our um, our review of the lot that we did for Twelve Days of the Comic Source Presents Bad Idea because we talk about story and how it impacts us and how important it is and what have you. And so I'm bringing my sensibilities to this story. And when this uh, this soldier commits suicide after being manipulated by the Sovereign and, and you know leaves a suicide note blaming it on Wonder Woman, it's so you know, over the top, absolutely ludicrous and stupid that anybody would think that Wonder Woman hasn't like, you know what that tells me? It tells me this guy was, you know, if I didn't know that the sovereign had manipulated him, cause I read the story, but if I'm, if I'm a, a citizen in the DC universe and I hear that that happened, you know what I immediately think? Well, that guy had some mental issues. He shot it. First of all, you, you have to be suffering some, from some kind of mental issues to commit suicide in the first place, right? Whether it's depression or, or, you know, some other condition that drives you to do that. Sane people don't commit suicide. It's, it's that simple. Um, you know, maybe with the possible exception of somebody who's in debilitating pain from some kind of terminal illness, you know, that that's more assisted suicide or what have you. But anyway, be that as it may, um, if I'm a citizen of DC universe and, and I hear that, Oh, this guy killed himself and he blamed it on wonder woman. I'd, I'd think, Oh, that, you know, P- PTSD, like any number of things before I think it's actually Wonder Woman's fault. But the depressing thing is you could actually see this happening, right? You could actually see that uh, or believe this to be possible in, you know, today's society. It's, you know, fractured as it is or what have you. So that, that, that just, it just bothers me. Like it bothers me that unfortunately it's a little uh, too possible, um, but, it, but also it, it, as you said, it's doubling down on the misogyny a whole hell of a lot. Um, I also agree with you that this idea that the sovereign is, is so powerful. He's got presidents kissing his ring and yet we've never heard of him before, but it goes back to what I was saying when I was talking about the Tinney Howard series, 
uh, the Catwoman series where it's like, well, everybody's got to appear for the first time at, at some point. So, you know, I, the sovereign's been around for a long time. We just have to kind of take that, um, you know, as we do, but for the main part of the story, Superman or Wonder Woman rather spending uh, time with this young boy that has a terminal illness and how heartfelt it is and how, you know, that, especially that moment where he's like, you know, is, is there something wrong with me? Why do I, you know, feel this particular way? Like it, it's hard not to, to get choked up. Like you said, because it's so, uh, there's just something about it that, that King does that makes it so poignant. And so, you know, you got to give him a lot of credit for, uh, for making a very heartfelt story and, and to juxtapose the care and the love that Wonder Woman is showing for this boy who at the beginning of the story is a stranger to her. And, you know, while all the hatred is going on, that's, that's a powerful tool that King is using to show, um, the, the contrast, right, between, the hatefulness of the sovereign who's manipulating everything, uh, manipulating events to happen in a certain way, and um, and who Wonder Woman her, uh, herself is. So that's you know that's pretty impressive for King to do that. So um, yeah, I, I'm I'm really enjoying this series as well. Um, I think that uh, I, I haven't heard much of the online hate. I, I tend to kind of curate my social media to. I just have all those people blocked, to be honest. I don't really care about their opinions. They're morons in my in my mind, so I don't listen to anything they have to say. But, um, yeah, this series is, is absolutely fantastic in my mind. And the Daniel Semper art just gets better and better with each subsequent issue. Um, so, again, huge fan of everything that's being done. Um, and the misogyny, unfortunately, is all too – it's all too possible. <laughs> yeah. uh, as far as the backup goes um, – Written by Tom King, Belen Ortega is the artist. It's more of the the next generation Trinity. It's more of John Kent, Damian Wayne, and um, and Lizzie. And it's a heck of a lot of fun. Basically, John and Damian are once again supposed to be babysitting Lizzie. This time it's their Fortress of Solitude. Um, Damian's training against some Kryptonian combat robots. Um, and John's busy dealing with stuff at kind of the communication center. Hey, where's Lizzie? Oh no, she's black mercying, right? She's getting her heart's desire from the black mercy flower. We know that can only go badly. <laughs> uh, not, not unlike, you know, Star Trek holodecking. Um, and sure enough, uh, she's getting her heart's desire, which is her as empress. And she's beating up on John and, uh, and Damien, which is a heck of a lot of fun. They don't know how they're going to get it off her. Uh, and then John figures out, well, you know, it, it feeds off, you, you know, your desire and your joy and whatever. There's like, we used to have these gloves that you could use to, you know, handle it or whatever. And then John realizes, wait, Damien, you don't have any joy or positivity <laughs> in you at all. You're the gloves. And I, like, if that wasn't like one of my favorite lines of this week, um, cause that is who Damien is. You know, he doesn't have any joy or positivity. The guy's a, 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 a downer, man. That's why it's so many people dislike him. Certainly why I dislike him. He's just so negative all the time. Definitely not glasses half empty, but glasses 99% empty. Uh, so yeah, it was a lot of fun. And I thought the Belen Ortega art was really fantastic as well. So uh, what'd you think of the backup? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, she's, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, the way Trinity is coming across here is what is the type of narcissism that, that, and the healthy self-image that 
reminded me of a of a of my early impression of Damian Wayne when Damian Wayne first came on the scene and written by uh, in particular by uh, Gle- uh, Gleason and Tomasi. I really fell in love with Damian Wayne. Grant Morrison brought back Damian Wayne, but it was Tomasi and Gleason, their their Batman and Robin run that made me love Damian Wayne and his sort of childlike narcissism. And uh, what I I, I got to get full props here. I, I'm I'm sl- Trinity. This young Trinity is really starting to grow on me, and I'm very glad to say that because her the first impression of Trinity was terrible. I thought her her debut was just awful. She came across like a bitch. She was unlikable. I didn't like it at all. Um, and it works better as a for for a young Trinity. I, it's the first impression is still terrible. I still think she comes off as terrible. This is a young Trinity. And she, in many ways, she sounds just like she does when she was the older Trinity that we originally saw. That we should see some evidence of maturity. And and I still say that her, that first impression of Trinity that we got in that first appearance was awful in Wonder Woman eight hundred. I think it was just terribly written. And uh, she's an older Trinity is unlikable. It's pretty alarming that a, a younger Trinity is more likable than the older Trinity because there's no evidence of actual maturity. Now maybe I'm being I'm being harsh, but I'm going to stand by it until I see some evidence because uh, it's um, while her narcissism might was intended probably by Tom King to come off as play, playful in Wonder Woman 800, it didn't come across that way to me. But uh, I know some people disagree with me on that, and that's fine. And I, I hope that I hope the majority of people disagree with me, quite frankly, because I want Trinity to be liked. Trinity shouldn't be. Trinity should be as liked and as at least as likable, but more interesting than her mother. Please be more interesting than your mother. Diana is so freaking boring and so uh, uninteresting. Make Trinity interesting. This is a good way to make Trinity interesting because if she's influenced by John Kent and Damian Wayne's dysfunctional relationship, then then Trinity is is destined to be an interesting character. Thank God. <laughs> so you know that's they're, they're, these are like the three musket. I would love to see ongoing uh, adventure between these three at some point. That would be quite the series to get. Call it the I don't know the Young Trinity or whatever you would call it. But this is interesting. Uh, and just a reminder to people: this year of DC Comics, we've been introduced to a lot of very young DC heroes. A lot of young a new the new legacy that the future of the DC universe is bright. If you start adding up all the lost children, all the sons and daughters of all the heroes that we've met just this past year, the future of the dawn of DCU looks pretty bright. Yeah. That debut of Trinity, um, you know, you mentioned her being kind of narcissistic, what have you. Like, I don't, I don't disagree. I don't disagree with you. Unfortunately. Uh, It's almost like if she just would have cracked a smile here or there. So we knew she was joking. With the context of seeing the, the interactions between the younger heroes and how she is, it, it does give context to that and makes it feel yeah. more playful. But you're, you're also, but you're also dead on in that, yeah. But if that's when she's, let's say, seventeen, there is a problem. Let's say she's five or six, seven years old here, and now she's seventeen and she's still acting that way. Yeah, where's the growth? Where's the evolution of a character? Where's, yeah, that could be a problem. So. Uh, anyway, that does it for the books that we're going to talk about, uh, in detail. Well, actually, that's all, that's all the books, um, this week. In terms of, uh, collections, it's a very small week. There's only one. The Invisibles book two, trade paperback. Uh, The Invisibles is the Grant Morrison Vertigo title. Um, this collects issues 13 through 25. Got some Phil Jimenez art, some Steve Yeowell art, some Jill Thompson art, some Mark Buckingham art. 
uh, Tommy Lee Edwards art. So a lot of people worked on those particular issues. So if you're a Grant Morrison fan, check that out. Uh, it's gonna, it, probably going to be a tough one. There's a few different books that are probably deserving Rocky, but uh, what are you going to give your nod to for book of the week? Uh, I'm going to go with, uh, I, I, I got to go with Batman off world. Uh, Batman off world. Number two was, was my favorite. Uh, yeah, I definitely Batman off world. Number two, there are some, there are some ones that were pretty close to it, but you know, Jason Aaron, uh, just continues to make a refreshing take on Batman. And even though it's not, it's nothing really new. It's still, a, it's sort of Frank Miller, Batman in space, but that's why I love it. It's it just, the setting is different. It's amazing how just taking the same, even though it might be a little bit tropey for Batman, the grim gritty Batman that we've seen so many times before, but just, the, I can't believe how just the change in setting with just not human beings he's up against, but aliens and, we feel that I feel like I'm in a different environment. I'm in an alien environment. I don't know what to expect. Batman might hit an alien in the face, but maybe the, you know, the face isn't where you're supposed to hit the alien in incapacitated. Like, you know, aliens think differently than us. Jason Aaron appreciates the fact that a different setting, different alien species means a different set of preparation, a different set of plans that, you know, you can't, you can't plan something if you're on a if you're facing aliens the same way you would against humans. And, and that's the central conceit of Batman Offworld. And that's why Batman's having the adventures in space that he has. And it's a uniquely, oddly enough, it's, it takes place in space. It's science fiction. And yet it is, in fact, a Batman's story. And that's why I love it. And, and I just, you know, it's two issues in and I'm still on board. What about yourself? Yeah, it, it is a tough call. I'll give an honorable mention of Superman number nine, um, which is probably just slightly below. Uh, but I think Wonder Woman is deserving. I think um, probably Justice League versus Godzilla versus Kong is deserving. I think uh, Green Lantern War Journal is is deserving. But yeah. at the end of the day, I gotta I gotta give it to Batman Offworld as well. Like it's just it it's firing on all cylinders. Um, you know, I, I love the complexity and the character work that Jason Aaron did on Ioni. Uh, the Doug Monkey art is fantastic. The David Barron colors are fantastic. And you, you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, at the end of the day, it's out in space and it's a cosmic story and whatever. And it's still a Batman story. You know, I, I, I mentioned it when, when I was talking about the issue, right? Like Jason Aaron coming over to DC, get a chance to write these characters the first time. I'm going to write a cosmic story. Any number of characters he could have chosen. And he chooses a character that doesn't even have superpowers and is telling an amazing cosmic story. Uh, that's saying something. That's doing, that's doing it right. That's showing your chops as a writer. So kudos to Jason Aaron and the creative team uh, for a fantastic uh, issue. Second issue of Batman Offworld. We'll see if he can continue uh, – and, and continue to raise the bar, you know, continue the high level of, uh, of storytelling that, uh, that they've been doing. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Uh, hope you all are joining us for 12 days of the comic source presents bad idea. Uh, we've got had five episodes out so far. Uh, the fifth or sixth one came out today. Uh, I, actually, I think the sixth one comes out today, same uh, Tuesday, same day uh, as this. And we'll be continuing on right up through Christmas getting a chance to talk about these bad idea titles that, uh, you know, not everybody has read. Rocky's getting a chance to read a lot of them the first time as well. So those are a lot of fun. They're a lot shorter than, than this because we're only talking about one series or one book uh, most of the time. So we hope you're all joining us for that. Don't forget, 
If you're watching this on YouTube, be sure you're subscribed to Rocky's channel, Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point! If uh, you're looking for it, uh, ring the notification bell. Engage with us in the comments. We love to talk about the books uh, and hear what you guys think about them uh, as well. Uh, if you want to, be sure to check out the Twelve Days as a Comic Source on YouTube. Just search for the Comic Source podcast. All these those videos are on that channel. And then if you want to engage with us in our audio-only podcast, just do a search for The Comic Source wherever you get your podcast. You'll find us and subscribe, and you won't miss out on any of the content. So, again, happy holidays. We hope you're all enjoying the Christmas season, uh, whatever it is you celebrate. Hope it's a really good time with family and friends. Thank you for joining us as always, and we'll talk to you next time. Yes, and a quick reminder, uh, go see Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. We gotta show, we gotta show the DC universe some love. So, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom does come out this month. So, you know, embrace it. Go, go support DC. 100%. percent <laughs> okay, Bye bye. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.